Hi, everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about the seven crystal balls. Le set boule de cristal. Yes, okay, right. here's what's happening. Let me explain off the top, <laughs> and I'll get to the premise of the show. Uh, I'm reading uh, Tintin. Well, we'll, tell, we'll mix the premise into what Dave's uh, talking about right now. The premise of the show is this. I work professionally as a comic book writer. I love comic books, have for most of my life, but I have never read the Tintin series of books, even though friends have recommended it over and over again. Friends like... Me, I've recommended to you many times, and for some reason... You just didn't believe me. <laughs> that's yeah, fine. That's right. That's fine. Sometimes with a book, with books like that, especially books that people treasure from their childhood, it's hard to make other people. It's hard to make people read anything that you mm-hmm. like, actually. Also, there's no rush, you know, because it's like they'll always be there. I'll get to yeah. them. It's not like you got to go see this movie. Uh, it's closing this week. You got to go see this play. You got to go see this concert. They'll only be in town that's one right. night. As I attend, it'll be on the shelves forever. But I've never read them, and so uh, David is a big fan of Hergé and the Tintin series, uh, and I've never read them, but I am reading them for the first time in this series now. Why Dave was speaking that crazy language earlier is uh, because I am reading uh, whenever possible in English because that's the only language I can speak, even though I was raised in Montreal and it's shameful that I don't speak any other language. But David, when he can, is reading the books en français. Oui. Uh, so this, I have uh, the Seven Crystal Balls and I have uh, the Prisoner of the Sun in French, so I'll be doing that one as well. So okay. it's just interesting because there are subtle differences between them. Supristi, in terms for one. Supristi for one, instead of great snakes. Instead of great snakes, but also names and some other things. We'll talk about while we're going through this book. Right. Um, yeah. So I was just going to say that I recommended that you uh, read Tintin on Facebook, and you did like that recommendation. So I felt like you probably read them then. <laughs> that's all right, because that's what that means. Yeah. Once you accept an invite on Facebook, you're going to you, go. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm a man of my word. Why that's would I not? Hundred- I clicked, I clicked yes. Yeah, everyone who clicks yes will show up. Absolutely, they do. And everyone who likes our Facebook page uh, will show up every week to listen to the show. I'm assuming. I, hope I can't so. see why they wouldn't. Why would they not? That's right. We're trusting little rubes they uh, have when it comes to, to do? this. Yeah. We don't know how the internet works, but we do know how books work. <laughs> so, uh, what's going to be happening in this episode is uh, David will probably be giving us, I, I can't speak for him. I could ask him. He's right here. But uh, normally, what David does is he gives a little bit of context as to where we are in the life of Hergé and uh, the series in general. Then we take the book, open it, uh, go page by page uh, through it. So, if you yeah. have not read the book so far uh, and you don't want to be spoiled, put this podcast aside for a while, read the book, and then uh, and then come back to it. And if you do want to be spoiled, we will do that for we you. We will spoil it for you. Absolutely. Gladly. So, so is that what you're going to be doing today? The context-dorama yeah, Dave we'll talk style? About, we're going to break up the context, but because we're, we're, actually there's a lot of context in this uh, with this book. But we'll break it up a little bit into palatable bites. It's, weird. it's like every time I think that, well, this is a simple story. Everything's going to be fine. That's the one that's got the most context to it, the most <laughs> yes. extra material. Yes. This is an interesting is an interesting book. So Yeah. So, well, we'll just start by saying, once again, it was published in Le Soir, Le Soir Volet, the stolen stolen newspaper, which, as we talked about in earlier shows, was a newspaper uh, that was published in Brussels that was taken over by the Nazis, by the Germans, and was made into a propaganda organ of, of the not you know of the Germans right. while they were occupying Brussels. Now, how far into the war are we right now? So this uh, was started publishing on the 16th of December, 1943. Mm-hmm. So we we're three years in. And things are starting to heat up. Like, things are starting to heat up. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go. Um, but um, 
So this is a month after. So if you remember, we ended uh, with Red Rackham's Treasure last time. That's right. And in between Red Rackham's Treasure and the beginning of, of the Seven Crystal Balls in Le Soir, uh, Hergé illustrated, but did not write, a story called Dupont et Dupont Detectives, which was about, that's the French name for Thompson and Thompson, is Dupont with a D and Dupont with a T, uh, Detectives. And in that story, they have an adventure. As we remember, at the end of Red Rackham's uh, treasure, they go to the country to go rest. To a farm. That's yeah. right. And in the story, it, it picks up exactly from where yeah. they begin, them standing at the oat crushing machine. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, it, was it a daily strip? It was a daily strip. But with one illustration per strip, like one yeah. image. One and then image, the rest was text. The rest was text, exactly. Okay. And if you... If anyone's interested, if they go to the website to the posting for the last uh, episode, Red Rackham's Treasure, I posted an image from it, but I also posted a link to a PDF version online of it. It's in French, so if you can't speak French, it's a bit more difficult to go through, but you can look at the pictures and get a general idea of what's happening. Um, and they're so, smarter in that than they are in the uh, book. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're still kind of silly. They, you know, they're following a book. They're, they, have a, they have a handbook of how to be a detective, right. which they're following step by step to solve the crime. And so basically, through a matter of coincidence, uh, you know, slavishly following the instructions of this book, they eventually reach the conclusion. Okay. Um, so now it's the that, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of uh, Tintin's Hamlet. Exactly. Yeah, and it wasn't written just like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It was not written by by uh, Hergé. Yeah. It was written by a guy named Paul Canet, who was a was a mystery writer, and uh, I guess he was a crime reporter or mystery reporter on mystery. I didn't, it said mystery writer. I assume he didn't write mysteries in right. the newspaper. I'm sure he reported yeah, on. If crime you're a stories. mystery reporter, you're lazy because you never found out who did it. <laughs> That's right. He reported just on the Loch Ness monster and on Bigfoot and the Abominable Snowman. That's all his stories were. That was his beat. Uh, so yeah, he. So once that was finished, uh, there was another month gap, and then Hergé started um, the Seven Crystal Balls, 16th of December, 1943. Right. Now, these, uh, the secret of the unicorn leads directly into Red Rackham's treasure, leads yeah. directly into Seven Crystal Balls, which seems to lead directly now into Prisoners of the Sun. So it's become, yeah. it's become, you know, a full, it's not individual stories taken, you know, again, when we started, we compared Tintin a bit to James Bond, mm -hmm. where you take every story as, as such, and, and there's very little reference to past stories in James Bond, maybe a character you might refer to, but yeah. they're all, you know, enjoy it on its own. They're single servings. And this now really seems to be, we've got a long continuing story with cliffhangers yeah. at the end of each of the stories going, you better read the next uh, chapter. Well, well interestingly, uh, as it was intended, Hergé had no plan to break these stories into two parts. It was actually conceived as a complete story from beginning to end. There was no sense of it being two books. The reason it's two books is because Casterman's self-imposed or imposed mm -hmm. uh, limitation of 160 or sorry of 62 pages right. per book. So that's the reason for that. Other than that, to Hergé, they were one story he was telling us, and it is kind of planned on the same uh, overall scheme of of uh, the. Uh, Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure, and that you op you start off by setting up the mystery, setting up what needs to be found out, mm -hmm. and then the second part of it is them going, the expedition or the adventure to go and solve this mystery or 
you know, find the treasure or whatever. Yeah. So I'll similar. Say, I'd say this one, though, and this is my only kind of real uh, gripe about the book, is I feel uh, this one has the weakest ending of any of the Tintins so far because it doesn't seem to come to a climax. It seems yeah. to, and we'll get around exactly. to that in a bit. Because it's not the ending. Yeah. It's the midpoint of the story. But even though, like, uh, Secret of the Unicorn led directly into Red but, Rackham's but, Treasure, it felt yeah. like it had its own climax, but that was, story wraps. But that book was conceived as a, so- mm. a single book. This story was conceived as a single story. Two books were conceived as a single story. Okay. So, you know, we'll talk about it as we go because there are there is an interesting uh, element to that, and we'll, we can get to that point sure, as sure. well. So, um, now, let's just point out that this is December, nineteen forty-three. This exact time, as as Hergé begins um, the Seven Crystal Balls, the Allies are starting to plan Overlord, the their plan to invade Normandy. Mm-hmm. So. Plans are afoot. So By the already, way, the we'll war- also have World War II spoilers in this podcast. That's right. If you don't know World War II, if you so, want to enjoy World War yeah. II on your own, then turn exactly. off this podcast. Exactly. So the British and the Americans are making their way through. I guess Canadians as well are making yeah. their way up through Italy. Uh, we've already talked about last episode. Mussolini has surrendered. Uh, the only fighting force left in uh, Italy is the Germans. They're you know putting up pretty tough struggle, and. We are this right now. That's what's happening. So they're you know massing forces in England, ready for Normandy, and Italy is slowly but surely falling to the to the the Allied forces. So now to Hergé, we talked a little bit about last time about the fact that he knew what he was doing would get him in trouble. You know, he was collaborating on a German-run newspaper, and as the war started to you know as German Germany's grip started to loosen, you know, and he realized that. This, you know, there was an inevitable ending to this situation, and the ending was him getting in trouble. He started to do what he normally does or did, which is to externalize internal stress. So he started having sinusitis and uh, all these flus and ailments and stuff like that. And actually, he took a month long break in the middle of, uh, actually, more than a month long break, a really long break, I guess two months actually, because it was May to July, May 6th to July 6th. He just took off entirely and did not produce any, anything for, for uh, Le Soir. And he just was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He was just absolutely, had exhausted himself. You know, and he was carrying a lot of load on his own. There was no, you know, he was doing Tintin by himself. He was, you know, just working away in this sort of lonely situation. And finally, at the, uh, as he started doing the several crystal balls, uh, he was joined by E.P. Jacobs, who finally agreed to come in you know he'd offered him a position as an artist as a colorist to come in and help him um and finally jacobs agreed and he started officially started with him in january of 1944 and so finally erge had someone that he could bounce ideas off of that he could work with that you know because he missed the days of working at like he wasn't working the same way at le soir as he was working at le petit vingtième the Petit Van Tim, he went every day to his office and he worked there in the, in the place itself. And he was the editor of the overall, uh, magazine and he, you know, or the supplement. He put it together. He, he wrote articles. He did other illustrations, you know, and it was kind of reflected him and he had his own little group of people that were his team that he worked with. After Le Soir Jeunesse folded, which was fairly quickly, uh, with Le Soir, he was just working by himself. He's just working at a drawing board and he missed that give and take that, that element of of working with people, you know, and so 
that was one good thing about Jacobs coming in. Because Hergé, by this point, you know, he's older. He's in his 30s now. He's no longer a young 20-year-old mm-hmm. or 20, 24-year-old full of vim and vigor. And that was the 30s and the 40s, which is a different 30s than 30s is now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he he was, uh, yeah, he'd become much more quiet and a very meticulous, cautious person. You know, and he kind of had lost a, a lot of his kind of spunk and vinegar, you know, had gone. And... uh you're in a Nazi country. I mean, that's going to take your spunk and vinegar away. Yeah, that Bro. also that also is it. So so Jacobs came in. At first, he was just going to help with the coloring and stuff like that, and and so you know he started working on recoloring um, all of the black and white early Petit Van Tien books and stuff like that that were in black and white, and then he started to help with uh, drawing, plotting, writing, actually working on the Seven Crystal Balls with with Hergé. You know, he did went and did research. He went to uh, the uh, the museum in Brussels, the Saint Quentin Air Museum, as it's called, which I think means fiftieth, but I'm not sure. All right. Uh, it uh, that's kind of housed um, a huge collection of, of archaeological artifacts, and so it had an Incan display there, and so they went there and looked at all the Inca artifacts, right. and that's where the mummy came from. They drew that from an actual mummy that was on display in the museum. So now. So, you know, we talked about like a King Autocar Scepter is an example of where Jacobs really kind of pushed himself forward. You know, he was coloring. They first started uh, with Tintin on the Congo, you know, and while they were doing it, of course, we know that they were kind of smoothing out the rough edges, redrawing elements of it, taking out things that, you know, maybe were dated, uh, things like, you know, the classroom scene yeah. where it's originally Tintin talking about the fatherland, about Belgium. About to these, Belgium, yeah. These little uh, African children. And they turned it to math. They later. turned it to a math lesson, that's right. We had said it was a simple math lesson, but it was still a math lesson rather than... And then when he did King Autocar Scepter, uh, it was basically like a redrawing of, of of all kinds of different elements. You know, he added... The original one was... Hergé just kind of used beefeater uniforms mm-hmm. for the guards. You know, it made it look kind of like a British monarchy. And... It was Jacobs who changed all that and made it into like a Balkan. He researched Czech and Polish and different uniforms, and he incorporated those into the story. So it wasn't just recoloring; he was also redrawing a lot of the background elements. And so, if you, and so when we look at this book, when we look at uh, Seven Crystal Balls, there's a lot more detail in the background. Some scenes, sometimes to the detriment of the scene, I think. Right. But there's a way more, way more background because uh, he was also very meticulous and. Uh, Jacques Martin, who worked with both of them, worked with both Jacobs and with Hergé, said they were both incredibly meticulous people. And he described them as, he said, you, they would sit for hours together, polishing and repolishing a phrase, taking a word out, adding another word in. And he said, he himself, he said, one could say they rivaled each other in their thoroughness. They were supremely unhurried, which I think is a good description of of. Hergé's working methods by this time is that, you know, to him, the importance was what ended up on the paper, you know, and he put everything he could, everything, all his energy into that. Uh, so, yeah, so as we go through the book, we can talk more about Jacobs as well. Now, let me just ask you just a general question. Sure. Is there, has anyone put together, you know, because, be, uh, you know, on our site, you've you've got some images from the past editions that, you know, then yeah. later got changed. Yeah. Has anyone put together a complete Tintin collection uh, with these images? Is there, uh, has there ever been anything close to that? Like in print, like it seems to me the only no. place I've been able to see these things is online. Yeah. Is that is that it? I think so. I don't think that, um, I mean, I don't have everything that um, 
everyone's written about Tintin. Oh, of course not. You I'm couldn't. missing a really great book I wish I had, which is someone, one of our listeners sent in that picture of the lemonade seller. Mm-hmm. It's this book by Michael Farr, and uh, he kind of goes through, and he uses, he had access. I don't know if he still has access, because the Moulin Sartre gives and takes away access to people. Right. But he had access at one time to the to um, Hergé's, um, his research files and stuff. So he was able to go through and find the images mm-hmm. uh, like of that lemonade seller. He's able to find that in Hergé's files right. and reproduce it for us to show us this is what Hergé used re- as reference for that image. Um, I don't have that book. I wish I did because that yeah. would be really helpful. Just but saying, it would be fantastic if there's someone, if that was possible. I'm just throw it out to the universe. Yeah, uh, you know, if someone would be able to do the complete Tintin, and you get yeah. all the versions of it, you <laughs> know, one after the other, you know, because as it stands, it will probably only be in digital form, and that's a drag for people that like, you know, to hold a little something yeah. in their hands, they'll flick yeah. it around, and get all the references. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure that kind of thing would sell. You know, I've seen so many shops with, I mean, bless all the Tintin merchandise that's, uh, you know, models and action figures, but we're coming up on a, uh, you know, and I'm sure it'll be fine, but a 3D printer world where all that can be duplicated. It sure would be nice if, uh, you know, you had something in print to, uh, to purchase for, uh, for the fans. As someone who's just starting to become a fan, I would like that, so I'll, I'll buy it if it comes out. Let me just say that to all the uh, people who control this. There. <laughs> Moving on. Also, please don't shut our pod- podcast down. All right, continue. Okay. <laughs> um, well, our podcast has news images, so we're okay that way. Oh, phew. Um, so now let's just go a little back. Let's just talk a little bit about the history as well that's going on. Well, during the run of Seven Crystal Balls, mm-hmm. June 1st, the Germans arrested King Leopold III uh, and took him to Germany. I don't know why they did that. He was just arrested and taken away. Mm-hmm. On June 5th, Operation Overlord begins, so 1,000 British bombers dropped 5,000 tons of explosives along the beaches of the northern beaches of of France, weaken you know to try and soften the artillery, uh, the German artillery there in that the what we call the Atlantic Wall. Yikes! And so then on June 5th, the actual operation began. I'm sorry, on June 6th, the D-Day begins. So that that was 155,000 troops landed in Normandy mm-hmm. and started to push through. You know, south, the Americans went south, down, and then up around towards Paris. And then the British and the Canadians, those lucky people, they went fighting all the SS troops along the northern part of Europe and, uh, you know, fighting through through Luxembourg for everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> because the Americans were kind of lucky because they went down and it was a bit softer. I mean, they were still fighting. Let's not kid ourselves. They were still fighting yeah. Germans, you know, all the way around. But most of the heavy duty troops were parked where the invasions were assumed to be, which was along northern France. So the British and the American or the British and the Canadians just had this terrible battle all the way through along the, the upper coast. Especially when the I don't want to talk too much about this, but when the Canadians got to the Netherlands, it drives me crazy that the Allies command stopped them from pushing forward and made them wait. And then the Germans were able to fortify all the dikes while they were waiting. And so then they had when they actually had to start fighting again, they had to fight through much worse conditions than they would have faced if they hadn't been stopped, but I suppose supply lines were getting rather, you know, straggling, yeah. so it gets much more difficult. Um, but anyway, enough of my complaining. Now, so this was when Hergé was sick. He was laying, he was off for this two months, so during this time, uh, and he had a prayer that he would say at night. He would say, he said, he would say to himself, Lord, liberate us from our protectors and protect us from our liberators. <laughs> okay. Because I think he knew, you know, what was coming. Uh, August 25th, 1944, uh, Paris was liberated by the Americans. 
and Hergé was staying with Father Wallet in the Abbey of Al- the Abbey of Alm, where uh, Wallet had been uh, kind of thrown aside, out of view. Uh, and so he was. He did this a lot. He would go there. He would pray and meditate. You know, just looking for some strength to carry on with. And I, you know, he could see the writing on the wall, so he really needed some time to to reflect and think about what was coming. All right. So let's start the story. All right. We're going in. As always, we'll be starting page one. <laughs> but well, let's start with. Oh, before we're not. Was, before we go to page one, wow. let's start with page zero. Okay. Uh, what's interesting here is there's you know, this. Uh, I know yours is a little different, but let's because I'm Boulle with the uh, Edg- Edgemont version, and you are the Casterman. So you have the opening image there, though. And the original book, uh, as published by Casterman, it was actually a pic- image of uh, of uh, what was his name, Raskar Kapak, the mummy. Mm-hmm. So it was this kind of grisly image of this mummy there, and there was a, some there were some complaints that it was it frightened children, and so Erge replaced it with this image of Captain Haddock with the bull. On his head, stumbling along the along the stage. Okay. Well, let's actually go to the cover for just one second Ugh. and just say you don't like the cover. No. All right. You tell me your problems with the cover. Well, I like the image itself. I just don't like. I don't. I don't like a the color cover. of Tintin's hair. Yes. That it's green. Come on. Come on. Color it. It's orange. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's like the one cover where his hair's wrong. Uh, that well, I think it's just because of all the green in the background. But I don't yeah, like no, it. No, fix that. I don't like it because it's floating in space. I do. I don't like covers that have no background. Okay. To them, and that was part of my problem with the back, the cover to the Secret of the Unicorn as well. Is it's just a, a plain yellow background. Yeah, I do like I like everyone's facial reactions though. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, but good. the image is fine. Yeah, the image is fine. It's a real grabber. You really do want to see what's going on with this story. Uh, I like Snowy running in panic. I like all that. Yeah. I just yeah, I don't care for uh, Tintin uh, having green hair. Come on, fix that. <laughs> to me, it's more just a matter of of the design of it, and I I think it would look nicer if you could. If you had a room, if you had a, the library with the books tumbling off the shelves and the fireplace mm-hmm. and just the kind of other general setting of it. So you get this sense of what what's happening, where we are. And I don't know. I just don't. I don't know. I've got to say, though, you know, having read quite a few uh, French, uh, quite a few band dessinées, I have to say that it's a, actually a, an amazing thing if they have a great cover. Usually their covers are okay. They're never like fantastic. They're never like super striking or startling. Not like American comics, mm-hmm. where it was felt like that sold the comic. Right. It's almost like it's enough that they feature the characters on the cover, and that's as good as you're going to get. And tough luck for you, Charlie, if you don't like it, because mm-hmm. that's what we're giving you. Like whether you read the Smurfs or Strumps or Johann and Pierre Louis or Benoit Brissifé, or I'm all saying all pale ones, but if you're reading uh, Jules Jordan, yeah. A lot of those, like, there's some that are great. There's a couple of Jill Jordan covers that are fantastic, but a lot of them are very pedestrian. Well, if you compare it to North American covers at the time, North American comic book covers did not have a lot to do with the story inside at all. It was just a ger- generic image. So Sometimes. It'd be, well, f- for the most part. So if you had a Superman story, it didn't matter what the story was inside. Yeah. On the cover, he's flexing his muscles and has like an eagle on one and a child hanging on the other. Yeah. And that's it. Or it's uh, Captain Marvel flying with his family, you know, with maybe Santa behind him or something. And maybe it's a Christmas story inside. Maybe it's not. Who yeah. cares? The cover is just, hey, we're letting you know who the characters are. Whereas in the Tintin, at least you would uh, see the cover and go, well, I know what's going on a bit. It's uh, story related. <laughs> I, I think like the story related uh, style covers kind of came in the 50s. When okay. I'm going to make the assumption that it was EC type yeah, stories, maybe, so yeah, they always it, had a cover that 
related, related to the to horror a, story to inside. The story, yeah. yeah, that yeah. would get you uh, looking inside. But up until that point, pretty generic for the mm. most part. I mean, you would see sometimes a cover where, you know, they're introducing a character. So we introduce Robin, you know, or here comes Groot or something along those lines. But yeah. for the most part, eh, you just want to buy a Superman comic. You don't care what's inside. Okay. Superman's on the cover. We're, we're good. So you're saying Ergie was pretty ahead of his time then and actually featuring something about the story on the cover of his album. Absolutely. You know, if we didn't have that <laughs> green hair nonsense, uh, we'd be fine. All right, so we're starting off with a beautiful... I, I like trains in uh, Tintin's world. Tintin's on a train. Yeah. Uh, I like uh, the way everyone's dressed on this train. Uh, and Tintin's reading a, a newspaper. A gentleman is looking over his shoulder. So mm-hmm. that sort of thing happened even back then. Yeah. yeah. You know, you couldn't uh, read without uh, someone over your shoulder. Looky Lou. So uh, do you want... Oh, I guess I should read this because you're going... you got the French edition. Here. Yeah, I'll have to paraphrase All this. right, so... Uh, this is a story uh, from uh, Liverpool. Uh, Sanders Harry uh, uh, Hardiman expedition returns. Uh, Liverpool Thursday. The seven members of the Sanders Hardiman ethnographic ethnographic expedition landed in Liverpool today, uh, back in Europe after a fruitful two-year trip through Peru and Bolivia. The scientists report uh, that their travels took them deep into the little-known territory. They discovered several Inca tombs, one of which contained a mummy still wearing a borla, or royal crown of solid gold. Uh, inscriptions established beyond a doubt that the tomb belonged to the Inca uh, Rascar Capac. So, that's what's, what Tintin's reading. What's interesting, the difference, what, what interesting difference between the English version and the French version is that uh, the French version, it's the, it's hand lettered the newspaper. It's oh. not it's not uh, type not type like typography. Would that have been realistic at the time? Would it have been no no no? It's his Hergé. It's his own. He did the lettering, so he would just oh I write see. It out. Yeah. Oh, all right. He probably it was probably too complicated to get the typesetting done for to have do that. Okay. So he just and the other interesting thing about it in English, it's a Sanders Hardeman expedition. In uh, the French version, it's a Sanders Hartmuth. Uh, so it was an English and German expedition. Once again, reflecting, just like in The Shooting Star, Hergé's, uh, his kind of weird neutrality where the Germans and the English are, in this imaginary world, are working together. Mm. There's no attempt to yeah. villainize, villainize them. So, uh, okay, so the gentleman is reading over Tintin's shoulder and smoking. It's a very different era. Uh, saying, oh, it's all going to lead to trouble. And with his foreshadowing, uh, saying, uh, you know, all this mummy business. Remember Tutankhamun and uh, all those uh, Egyptologists dying with serious circumstances? Well, that's probably going to happen to these guys. Oh, you think so, says Tintin, making small talk. Snowy, not having having this. Looking over at the guy with a scowl like, we're trying to read the paper. Okay, <laughs> get get the heck out of here. And uh, But the man says, I'm sure of it. Anyway, why can't they leave him in peace? What would we say if the Egyptians or Peruvians came over here and started digging up our kings? Huh? What would we say then? Well, I, well, here's my stop. I gotta go. <laughs> so, hopefully this was actually his stop. And it looks like it was. We're at Marlin it's, Spike. It's interesting, the return to... Um, the re- Kind of a callback to the Cigars of the Pharaoh. Because it's a in- in- similar story with the use of the... Yeah, mummies. The mummies and also the curse. Yeah, you, know. you want Tintin to turn to him and just go, oh, you think that's bad? I saw a bunch <laughs> of guys murdered and uh, made up into mummies. Anyway, I got to go now. <laughs> Telling me facts, reading a story. I'm a, a reporter. Yeah. Anyway, next page, happy Tintin going for a, going for a walk down the lane. Very happy Snowy. Uh, Snowy's expression changes radically <laughs> yeah. in the second battle uh, where he does not enjoy this walk anymore. And I it looks it's, like yeah. Tintin has been walking for a while himself. I think it shows, yeah, he's more... He's no longer swinging his arms. He's got his hands in his pocket. It's probably a little cold. 
because we can see from the background that it's either the fall or early spring. Yeah. And then uh, finally they're there. Right, finally they're there. Are. And then we see uh, Moulin Sart or Marlin Spike again, right drawn right from the front. We have yet to see it from the side. <laughs> That's true. It's interesting. It's like he had one. Uh, he had one picture of of. The uh, Chateau Cheverny, and that's all he used was just that one image. Yep. So uh, Nestor, the butler, uh, greets him at the door, uh, says that uh, the captain is not here right now. He's been out riding, and uh, with a very funny gag, here comes his horse. <laughs> yes. And here comes the master, who's all <laughs> bashed up, dressed fancy, uh, fancy horseman. With his jodhpurs. With his, his jodhpurs. Well, that doesn't matter, but his riding crop and his riding habit. And you can tell uh, maybe money has changed him. Uh, because he is demanding a new monocle. Yes. <laughs> so uh, now, for some reason, he is talking like an Englishman. Uh, maybe he's English. I don't know. We've talked about whether or not the captain's English or not. Uh, but uh, he's delighted to see Tintin, the old chap, and so on. <laughs> so we've yeah. uh, reintroduced the captain. We've established that uh, he is now rich. Yes. Uh, and uh, whether or not wealth is treating him well, we'll see. <laughs> Has it gone to his head? Perhaps. Perhaps a little. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, here comes, uh, Professor Calculus. Yes. They can't get rid of him. He owns the house they live in. So. D- does he actually own it? I thought he just gave him the money. Well, so the captain's under a great debt to him. I suppose he could pay him off out of his, out of his fortune, but there's still a bit of a debt there. It'd be kind of churlish to, uh, okay. accept money from someone. Do you think that it was a debt? Do you think that he has lent him the money or do you think he's given him the money? I think he gave it Either to him. way, it's a debt of honor then because you can't just throw someone out of your house after they lend you money. No, he's not lending him money. Look at with the or last. Or give you money. Well, not even, okay, giving you money, but the reason he said he gave him money. Yeah. And the last one was because the captain did him the favor of letting him test out his okay. submarine. So you say there's a quid quo pro. So yeah, the uh, captain owes him nothing. The quid pro has already been quoted. If he, if he could, if he wanted to, he could throw him out. This, the old deaf goat. And you think that he doesn't like him, mm-hmm. as as per the last uh, series of stories. Yeah. We will find out if that's true as we go along. That's true. Now, we're establishing, once again, uh, good old calculus has a little problem with the listening. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's not uh, he's not hearing really what Tintin's saying. Uh, Tintin's saying he has to go home this evening. Excellent, excellent. Well, you're going to be staying then. So, there you are. And he's still got his divining uh, a bit of jewelry there. I will say that in this book, that that the whole deafness element is underplayed compared good. to the last one. Wouldn't glad you say? to hear it. Wouldn't you say that? Hundred percent. Yeah, I'm not hundred percent, but I'm glad to hear it because I did not care for that. Oh, I enjoyed it, but I know you do. But uh, I mean, it would be it would become boring if it went book book through book by that. And yeah. I think you agree. Looking at this book, that nice it's to meet become... you. You like sniffing glue? All right, you know that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff gets. That's was never said in Tintin, but okay, but. Uh... <laughs> But this is a, you know, it's underplayed in this book, yep. is what I'm saying. Is they, they don't, they don't uh, have the same amount of, like, or Erge didn't have as many gags involving that. You know what, his, though? Here's the thing. It would, it would not really make sense for that. Cause, you know, in the last one, he was, he was the new comedy relief character. Mm-hmm. So that was what he was to there to do. And yeah. also, you were supposed to underestimate him so that when at the end he becomes the hero, oh, that's very exciting. Whereas yeah. here, you want him to be sympathetic so that when, and here's your spoilers, you're going to, yeah, when he gets kidnapped, yeah. you're like, oh no. Mm-hmm. But if he's, if you're playing him up just as a, a straight, uh, buffoon, yeah. now it's not going to hit you hard later. So it he, makes sense. There's a little buffoonishness. We can there talk, is. We can talk there about There is. That. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of comedy going on right now. All right. So let's turn the page. Sounds good. Where we see Snowy being more dog-like than we've ever seen him. You know, it's hard to imagine the Snowy of old. The land of the Soviet snowy, the Cong- Congo snowy, chasing after a cat mm-hmm. and upsetting uh, someone who's carrying drinks. 
he was much more like a grumpy old man than he was a dog in those stories. You no, know? let me ask now you, he's a dog. Whose cat is this? I think it's the captain's cat, isn't it? Did the captain get a cat between the last issue and this one? Wasn't it? Wasn't it in living in the house when? Yeah, whose was it? It was probably the birds. Oh yes, okay, all right. So the cat is uh, the villain's old villain yes. who's still on the run. Because remember, he escaped yes. in the last issue. That's right. He is forever looming over the stories. Right. Forever looming over them. We may never see him again. I'm not saying we'll never. I don't want to spoil these books for you. Okay. I'm not saying that we'll never see him again. Yeah. What I'm saying is it's a it's a long, long Chekhov's gun. <laughs> okay. Well, that's one thing, you know, through this story where occasionally Snowy will be barking at a wall. And I was thinking like, ah, because the villain still was not caught from the last issue. Here, here we yeah. go. Oh, yeah. Could be any second. That's the problem. Here with, we go. That's the problem with the overflowing tub. All right. So uh, Snowy is chasing the cat. Uh, slides into Nestor, who has a tray full of beverages. Uh, we see how amazing Nestor is as a butler, yeah. stopping his fall with one hand, balancing it beautifully. Uh, and uh, but then, unfortunately, Snowy jumps over one more time, causing everything to go crashing down. My notes for this page was, was four days of this. <laughs> I often like to think that these are published daily, and I like to think to myself, well, what was it like reading it daily? What were you, what were you getting? Are you getting a guy toppling? You're yeah. trying to control a toppling drinks tray. You know what, though? Four days. People reading this, they're in a Nazi country. they got worse problems yeah. Yeah. <laughs> than, no, than no. a slow-moving story. They're fine. I don't think it's a slow-moving story. I think it's it is sort of actionful, but it's it's interesting. It's this, it's a curious Yeah, I also thing. I also like Nestor's expression. Uh, you know, it's just very calm while mm-hmm. chaos is going yeah. on. Good stuff. Yeah, the model for Cadbury from Richie Rich. Really does remind me a lot of Cadbury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like after the captain moves out, Richie Rich's family moves right in. <laughs> so uh, Snowy is chasing the Siamese cat. And Bill up. makes the house as big as the country of Belgium. It's a very well-drawn Siamese cat, by the way. Mm-hmm. As someone who has a Balinese cat, this is a very well-drawn Siamese cat. Well, here's an interesting fact for you. Uh, Hergé had a Siamese cat. Uh, well, yeah, then so. there we are. Uh, so, and also I like, okay, this is just a small thing too. It's also nice because it looks so different than Snowy. You know, Snowy's this white cat and it's a nicely colored cat. It's good. So, so, uh, Snowy is chasing the cat up, yeah. uh, around the corner. Oh, looks like Snowy has got the better of him. Incorrect. Cat has got the better of Snowy, who comes running out with stars, uh, shooting out of And a black head. eye. And a black, cause the cat punched him in the face. Exactly. And how quickly it formed too. It's amazing. Yeah. So, it could uh, be that or the cat tricked him into looking through a telescope. Let's see if uh, Tintin is sympathetic to his poor little black-eyed dog who now looks like he belongs with the little rascals. Nope. <laughs> you miserable animal. That's your handiwork, he says, you know, when we see all the broken glass and uh, booze on the floor. Mm-hmm. But, hey, uh, the captain, who seems to be scowling at Snowy, nah, don't worry about him. Let me show you something fantastic. So uh, the captain is now showing uh, Tintin a magic trick. And that magic trick... Don't, don't forget that he broke his monocle. Uh, in amazement when Snowy and the cat jumped through the, the drinks tray. Oh. So he has to replace it again before he can do anything further. Oh, man, I worry about uh, the, this uh, monocle thing in the eye. <laughs> With everyone falling down so many stairs, that is a good way to lose an eye, having a glass monocle in it. Yeah. So dangerous. Okay, so uh, he's he's doing the old uh, vanishing uh, or the change the water into scotch trick. Yes, uh, with a tube, the classic magic trick to change water into scotch. Yeah. Now, by the way, everybody, if you want to learn how to do this trick, you probably can online. Mm, it's yeah, fine. Sure. Uh, if you want to, actually, there's a really impressive uh, version of this that uh, a guy I know, Sean Farquhar, does. Um, this book, this book was pre-internet, so so all. What was this book pre-internet? Yeah. So all Haddock had to rely on was. 
his own ability to figure out the trick. Yeah, well, here's the other thing he could do. Uh, he is now, is Haddock a millionaire? I would say he's wealthy. I don't know exactly what. Quite wealthy, We're right? not told. We're Here's not told. what I think he does. Ring, ring. Hi, is this a magic society? I am a rich man. I would like to know how to do this trick. Yes, sir. Let me tell you how we do this trick. The end. Okay. So he's uh, trying to turn the water into scotch and very frustrated that this trick does not work. No, but before that, is this the greatest thing ever of him laughing, laughing hysterically at the fact that, that Tintin would think that it's merely water in the, in the cylinder? Which it is. <laughs> and uh, he makes the mistake, uh, Haddock, of drinking water, which is basically his kryptonite. <laughs> it's poison to him. Yeah, he's he's so upset, he throws the water down into Snowy's poor little face. <laughs> which, well, I don't which, think he meant to. I think he just leapt up from the chair and spilled it. Which but. actually washes away tint, well, Snowy's black eye, so good for him. Yeah. Because we do not see it on the next page. Well, so that's why he lo- was f- tricked into looking through a telescope by the, by the uh, cat. <laughs> that's right. So uh, the captain reveals that uh, he's uh, gone to see a magician mm-hmm. who does this trick yeah. and wants to take uh, Tintin to, to see this magician. So, in fact, they're going to the Hippodrome and they're going to go see this. Uh, the captain dresses up in a beautiful uh, tuxedo, very sharp. In French, it's the Musique Hall Palace. Ah, very nice. And so the show begins. Uh, first on the show, uh, oh, all these freaking words. Uh, Ragdalam, the faker, with Yamala, um, <laughs> yes. the amazing clairvoyant. Then Ramon Zarate, the knife thrower. Next, shut up, says uh, Captain. Here comes uh, the faker. He's incredible. So uh, the faker comes out. We've had many fakers in uh, yeah. the world of Tintin. Yeah, they... Uh, I actually really like that uh, mystical sort of thing, and he liked to explain it in his books. Now, what's interesting in this sequence is that it actually was edited for the for this version. So, in the uh, newspaper strips, mm-hmm. how it went was, uh, um, what's his face puts Madame Yamala into a hypnotic trance. What's his name? The figure? Oh, that is a good question. It is, uh, yep, uh, Ragdalam. Okay. He puts her into a into a hypnotic trance, and then she starts to do her trick. So, uh, for instance, he asks her to tell the last name of the man in the audience, and she says, or her first name, I should say, and she says Seraphin in the French. I don't know what she says in the English version. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's the uh, Augustus. Okay, and then so now there were three days of strips that were cut out, and in that version, she. For another four four panels, she guesses the contents of people of of like women's purses in the audience and mm-hmm. people what they have in their pockets, and then on the second day, the ragdolant points to a woman and says uh, something about her fur coat, her mink coat, and Yamala says it's not mink, it's rabbit, and then Haddock laughs uproariously at this. So then Ragdolant turns his attention to Haddock and says, "What does this man have in his pocket?" And this is on the third day, and she says a flask of whiskey in his right pocket and uh, a supply of replacement monocles in his left pocket. <laughs> and then the audience laughs uproariously. And so that was cut out. So basically that would fill the spot uh, in between where he says, uh, where she names, where he says to the man, is that not correct, sir? And he says, yes, that's right. And then, and then he, then he uh, draws her attention to, draws her attention to the, uh, is it Clarkson? Mrs. Clarkson in the audience? Uh, uh, let's see. I got the lady in the third row whose husband is a ph- uh, photographer. I don't think I've got a name. Uh, they say it later on because someone okay. comes out and says, um, oh, it's Clermont in, in the French version. Okay. So that's why I was wondering what it was in the. Clarkson, you're right. Clarkson. Okay. 
So, yeah, what's interesting about Madame Clarkson? So, so he draws attention to Madame Yam, Madame Yamalet to Miss to Clarkson or Clermont and says, you know, what is her husband's profession? He says it's a photographer or a filmmaker. And then, uh, and then she has this, uh, kind of sudden, has a sudden, uh, you know, sense of something terrible looming, screams and faints. Now, what's interesting about, to me about the scene is, here's the first good-looking woman in <laughs> Tintin, is Madame Clermont. Or she, she, she's drawn somewhat off-model for yeah. a regular Tintin well, character. Most of the wo- her eyes yeah. are very different than you would normally see in a traditional Tintin story. What, what, well, because what we're most used to seeing women doing is pushing a broom. So this is interesting that she's not pushing a broom, well, she's actually a... Well, what she's got is, and I'll tell you what she's got. Look at Tintin and, okay, Tintin's got just black specks for eyes. Yeah. Then you've got the captain who's got little orphan Annie eyes. Yes. And this is the standard we see. Yeah. Uh, you have a woman in the audience. She's got kind of the black specks for eyes with a little little lip on top to show you she's a lady. Yeah. But what this woman has, yeah. she's got Dr. Seuss eyes. She's got round eyes with the with the letter U in there, as you'd see in Dr. Seuss. Okay. She would fit in very well in a story of Horton Hears a Who. Yes. So, of course, first she's upset that uh, Madame Yamala says this about her husband, and then... But she's very attractive. Let's admit that. Let's admit that, yes. I would like to climb into the book. And then... (laughs) Ew. (laughs) And then uh, the compere comes out on stage and announces that... uh, Look, he's, you know, announces that he's looking for Madame, Cl- for Madame Clarkson, Mrs. Clarkson, uh, that her husband has been stricken ill and please, uh, you know, go whatever. I'm just trying to paraphrase. When, please and, get out of here. Yeah, yeah, come on, quickly. And then you see her walking. She's, she's got the nervous sweats. But she's still beautiful. Yep. Despite her nervous sweats. Oh, you're saying the woman in the audience is the beautiful one. I thought you were yeah. talking about the, uh, the woman who was uh, doing the, no, 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 the no. Dr. Seuss type one. No, oh, no, no. all right. Fair enough. No, no, I meant uh, Madame Clarkson. Oh, she's very nice, too. Okay. They're both attractive in their own way. Okay. So now what we've got, <laughs> but not worth climbing into the book for. <laughs> Whatever you say, Ian. So uh, the captain says, nah, this has got to be a put-up job. This can't be true. Nah, she, yeah. I don't know why he's turning it to Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> but the next fellow comes up fun. is Ramon Zarate. Uh, quite a remarkable fellow, amazing knife thrower, and uh, Tintin recognizes him from somewhere. We do a close-up, yeah. and dear audience, when you saw him, did you recognize him? I sure didn't. You didn't? No. Oh, I guess I've read the books quite a few times. Yeah, he reappears after uh, nine, or sorry, six years. Mm-hmm. And beat, so uh, he is throwing uh, the knives at his assistant. Alcazar. Alcazar, uh, doing some very difficult throws, telling you, uh, this throw is difficult. This throw is more difficult. Now, mucho more difficile. Uh, and uh, then throws a... Now, is he throwing it into some sort of melon or something that the guy is holding? I think it's a, I think it's a, a board. Target? I think it's a, tar- a board with a target in the yeah, center. Yeah, he's holding yeah. a target over, over his heart, basically. A little maybe lower than his heart. Because you, you can see the various... Uh, points in it where the knife is struck before, yes, including one on the very edge of it. So you can see that it, one one of his throws was not very on target. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting in the the um, French version, rather than saying mucho, he says plus, but it's spelt in a way instead of being spelt p l u s for more, it's spelt p l o u s, which not being familiar enough with French pronunciation, I don't know how that changes it, but in some way, I guess that indicates. A Spanish accent that he's Probably pronouncing right. it with a. So there we go. So uh, uh, we uh, we see that all go. Oh, and uh, Tindin does reveal that he used to be president of the Republic of San uh, Theodorus. Yes. 
Uh, I wonder uh, what landed him on the music hall stage. So we see the act. Uh, applause, applause, amazing, very good. And then, oh, Bianca Castafiore. Uh, the so what Milanese. does what does uh, Bahadik say to to? Because he says, oh, it's so. Tindon says it's General Alcazar, and he, and then Haddock has an exclamation mark, and he says, General who? Or what does he say there? Yeah, he says General who? Okay. And then Alcazar, you remember, used to be president of the Republic of San Theodores. Okay. Okay. Yep. So uh, yes. after the uh, after the knife throwing act, uh, yeah, it's Bianca Castafiori, the Milanese uh, Nightingale. Uh, she comes out and sings very strong, strong stuff, once blowing again, her hair back. Once again, the jewel song from uh, Gunod's Faust. And if you want to hear that song, you I don't know if you cut through it all, but if you ever anyone listened to King Ottokar's Scepter, I actually put the jewel song at the end of that episode, so you, everyone could hear. Oh, nice! It was Maria Kellis, so it's not uh, it's much it's much more mellifluously sung than uh, Castafiore does it apparently. So she sings uh, her song and is then joined by Snowy. So now, by the way, nice of them letting Snowy in to see a show. So one of the differences in in the French version from the English version is because of the the insane uh, publication, uh, the way that the books were published. So in uh, in the French version, Haddock does not know Castafiore, and so Tintin says, "I." I know her very well. He says, I met her in Saldavia during the affair of King Ottokar Scepter. And Haddock says, decidedly, you know everybody. Mm. And in the, in the English version, look, Bianca yeah. Castafiori, uh, yes, I thought you'd be surprised. Yeah. He, he knows Because her. this book came out after the Calculus Affair mm-hmm. and after um, uh, Red Sea Sharks. And so in those books, Haddock meets her or knows her in those books already and so this book came out in the english translation came out after those so the english translators had to do this weird uh little kind of fix up fix them up on the spot to try to to try to uh kind of uh smooth over these the weird joins because of these books were published out of sequence and they did smooth well done <laughs> uh good uh good joke with snowy there uh they all had they had to leave uh, the the uh, captain saying, "Oh, she was in very good voice tonight." And Snowy wasn't bad either," said Tintin. I like that his tie is 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 uh, flapping in the in the. Yep, Tintin's tie. And so Tintin decides to go say hi to General Alcazar. Now, did they leave on good terms, uh, Tintin and Alcazar? Uh, not super good terms. That's what I'm remembering. It seems yeah. a weird thing to want to go. Let's go say hi. You know, it's like I don't think. Remember, he was kind of a dictator, right? Wasn't he? Or not the greatest guy, right? He was. Anyway, let's go say hi to him. So uh, off they go backstage. A really nicely drawn backstage. I like all the uh, props. I like seeing the clown reading the racing form. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. good. And Smoking green. a pipe. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so uh, they uh, pass by. Uh, you know the uh, is that is that the faker then with the um, yes that's right yeah. Uh, the pa- who tells uh, Tintin that he's in dressing room 14. Yes. Uh, Tintin uh, goes in and, s- and sees the general. Uh, who's like, yeah, don't you remember me? Yeah, I do. My old friend. Uh, okay, fair enough. We're going to go with that. What I like in terms of uh, background detail is the is that Ramon Zapate actually has a, uh, a logo on the knife, on his knife holder. The RZ. Ah, Nicely he- drawn there. I like that. That is very nice. And a poster of himself on the wall. And I think that's an example of, of uh, Jacob's touch in these stories, is the, is the added uh, background uh, scenery and stuff like that. It's just because, you know, previously Hergé, working by himself, didn't have time to add all those elements. So 
now working with someone else, that was you know they were able to do that. Now, when when Tintin is introducing Captain Haddock and saying, "You remember my friend Captain Haddock?" Had he met Captain? No, Haddock? that's once again is another addition to because um, not to give distant spoilers, but uh, Alcazar appears in the Red Sea Sharks, uh-huh. and so that's where Haddock met him. So we have to explain. In in the English version, that's where Haddock first encounters him. Like if you went by English okay. publication dates. So so him saying you remember Captain Haddock does not make sense then in this English version. It makes sense in the English version. It doesn't make sense in the French version because in the French version it came out before the Red Sea. Okay, sharks. but I'm saying like here it makes sense because he's met him. Uh, Haddock met him in the Red Sea Sharks, which was published in the English versions. Don't look in the back because the back is the is the actual chronology. Right. In the English version, the English version came out in '62 of this. Okay. The Red Sea Sharks and the Calculus Affair came out, oh, maybe, oh, anyway, the Red Sea Sharks and the Calculus Affair were both published in English in, English in 1960. I under, understood. Now, yeah. but if I'm reading this now myself yeah. in order, as it says in the back of the book. Yeah, it doesn't make it sense. It does not make sense. That's right. Okay, yeah. there we go. Yeah. All right, so uh, they seem to sort of know each other. Uh, the uh, the captain, it's it's weird. Uh, well, what's weird is that they re-lettered the books. Well, they re-lettered weird. Neil Hislop's original, in my version of uh, Red Sea Sharks. This one second. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Great, uh, great radio. Now you can see see the difference in the in the lettering. Yes. So this is the hand-lettered version by yeah. Neil Hislop. Now, for whatever reason, Egmont, when they republished, they decided to. I mean, it's not dumb because it's really an impress. It's an, really an attempt to to uh, duplicate Hergé's own lettering style. Makes sense. But why, when you're doing that, why not? return the books to their to the normal uh chronology why keep in the the fake british 50s 60s chronology that was only put in there in order to make sense of the fact that the books were published out of order egmont is publishing them in a complete set anyone can look in the back and see that the proper chronological order of them there's no need to have these uh weird uh things these weird kind of fill-ins to smooth over the the problems with how the books were published. Yeah, it's it's just weird the reactions here. It's like the the first the first panel on the top of thirteen. Everyone's happy to see each other. Yeah, that's like, and this person here is what you remember. My friend Captain Haddock, and Haddock looks whoa, like he seems yeah. upset that you know. I suppose it could be because he doesn't recognize him, even though you should remember him. I yeah. suppose that makes some sense. In the French version, it's he's uh, Alcazar is his uh, greeting or his what he says is much colder. He says, and that individual. Yeah, Who's that makes that? sense. You know, yeah. and so his is a bit more, bit more guarded, and uh, so then you know, then once the introductions are made, then they're much more friendly. Alcazar, you know, just being more gruff, I guess. So, uh, long story short, uh, you know, happy to meet you. Hey, how are you doing? Let's uh, have a drink to celebrate us all meeting together. Tintin warns the captain. Uh, Captain's happy to have a drink. Always happy to have a drink. But Tintin warns him: this alcohol is stronger than you expect. Ha ha! Yes. Says. This uh, well-trained drinker, uh, he swigs it back in one gulp and uh, just is brought to tears. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, and you uh, know that's strong if Captain Haddock can't take it. That is really strong alcohol. Sure. Because that guy can drink. Sure. So, uh, you know, you're surprised to see me on the music hall? Oh, what can I do? There's another revolution in my country. And that mangy dog, General Tapioca, has seized power. So he had to leave and became a knife thrower. Uh, but uh, It's good to have a skill to fall back on. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
it's it's uh, hopefully he's very skilled although it's very dangerous uh but the captain says oh we gotta get back we're gonna miss the conjurer we came to see so uh goodbye said the goodbyes walk yeah. out uh we see a gentleman there a samurai a yeah, very v- fancy samurai and what when i looked at this i was thinking to myself that's ep jacobs that's not that's not erge we know how erge draws japanese people yeah this is, that's not an erge that's not an erge uh japanese person that's definitely to me looks like ep jacobs Filling in a little bit of the detail around the scene. And it's, I don't know whether it's supposed to be a Japanese person who has put on extra Japanese makeup to make his face yellower. Like, I can sort of go, well, it's the yellow face thing. Yeah. Okay, grain of salt, what are you going to do? But you see his hands, yeah. and his hands are uh, Caucasian. So maybe it's a fella who's dressed up dressed as up, a yeah, Japanese fella. So. And then we got a couple of clowns walking in the background. <laughs> I like the casual clowns. Yeah. Uh, the one clown was the guy seeing the race, reading the racing special. Yeah. I like that he's reading the racing special, by the way, sorry, and smoking a pipe. Just so casual. Nice. I just imagine that that clown is actually playing the accordion as he's walking down the hallway. Because he's holding it. And yeah. he's, it looks to me like he's playing it. So. Oh, I hope he dresses as a clown all the time when he goes to the racetrack. <laughs> uh, so uh, they get lost backstage, uh, Tintin and the captain. Yeah, even more lost. Captain sees a bar, opens the door. Nope, it was a fake uh, door to a brick wall. Kicks the door. Scenery falls down, crashes over his head. Good business there. Leans against a post, on for- a pillar. Unfortunately, the pillar is very light. It falls over, hits a table. A bull's head goes flying in the air, lands on the captain. Uh, help, he says. He's struggling. This is the image we saw on the first page. Yeah. Uh, stumbling uh, towards the stage door where the conjurer is on the stage, about to do the water into whiskey trick, when the captain bursts through as the bull with a curtain on his head, stumbling, falling. Beautiful sh- uh, theater. Yeah. Gorgeous theater. We see that the Absolutely. seats that Tintin and the captain were supposed to be in are empty, as they yeah. should be. Yeah. Uh, everyone's reaction is perfect. Yeah, this is this. this is absolutely an E.P. Jacobs drawing. Is it? Like, you, if I when I look at this, I can see just the hair of the people in the in the foreground yeah. on the, on the right hand side. So Jacobs, like so Jacobs, and then all the detail as well, the filigree, the, the bat in the pentagram with a question mark over it. So so much. It's beautiful. There. This is a great yeah. panel. And if you look on the left hand side of the page, in the box, uh, I guess the second box up. Mm-hmm. There's a man with a bow tie leaning forward with dark hair. That is E.P. Jacobs. Oh, nice Making one. a little cameo. Good for him. Uh, yeah, actually, the characters on the right of the panel remind me a lot of Max Fleischer characters. I could see Superman flying into this very simply in, in that same time yeah. period. Yeah, well, I mean, if you just look at the lady's hair and the, and the men's hair, it's just not Hergé, how Hergé yeah. would do it. It's it's really it's really much more Jacobs style. But good for you, Jacobs. It's a nice job. Uh, the uh, and uh, the the Captain Bull, uh, who has also impaled a painting, as well, uh, falls into the orchestra pit, and eventually the uh, Captain has fallen into a bass drum with the mocking uh, Bull look, head, which is now on a bass, looking at him. And uh, great scene, great comedy scene. Let's move to the next. Yeah, page. Jacobs was brought in to work very closely with RJ. It wasn't. It wasn't really just an employee-employer relationship. Uh, Hergé hired him at a salary. That's true. But within a year, his plan was to uh, give um, Jacobs a, a percentage of whatever, you know, of the income from the, from the books mm. for what the books he worked on. So it wasn't just a plan of just a straight salary. It was going to be a partnership to a degree. I mean, there would be limitations to it. Hergé was the, was the better known of the two. 
but uh, in his mind, they were equals in terms of their artistic abilities. And he much, much more appreciated much more uh, Jacob's sense of color than his own. You know, in fact, I think if you look at this, if you compare this book to the earlier books that were colored, say uh, the Shooting Star, or particularly uh, Crowd with the Golden Claws, you can really see the improvement in the coloring that Jacob's brought to it. Very nice. Uh, the next page, uh, an embarrassed captain is storming out uh, into a storm of the Hippodrome, putting on his coat. Uh, Tintin also getting his coat on, uh, leaving with Snowy. Uh, and the captain says, a delightful evening, I must say. I'll drop you off on uh, my way home. <laughs> Two days later, uh, Tintin is reading the newspaper as he is wont to do, probably at breakfast, I would assume. Judging by the teacup. Yeah. And uh, the headline reads, Mystery Illness Strikes Again. First Clarkson, now Sanders Hardiman. Late last night, Mr. Peter Clarkson, 37, photographer to the Sanders Hardiman expedition in South uh, America, was suddenly taken ill at his home. A few hours later, Professor Sanders Hardiman was found in a coma. I think it found in a coma. Uh, is that right? Comatose? Com- Maybe. Comes, I don't know. Comatose, We're cut off. Yeah. Comatose, yeah. Found in a comatose bedroom? No, that wouldn't make sense. It's got to be a word that uh, goes C-O-M, and then it's a hyphen, then it's uh, some word on the next thing, and oh, then okay. bedroom. So, Oh, I'm you're trying to, trying to... Okay, I see. Yeah, trying to figure out what that says. Anyway, uh, Tintin flashes back to the gentleman in the train, saying, oh, they're all going to come to a bad end. Yes. You wait. You wait for violating that. Uh, could there be something in what the chap said? Hm, who knows? I wonder. Uh, the doorbell rings. Tintin has uh, very smartly changed from a two... Uh, button doorbell from last uh, yeah, book to this one. That's right. To a one-button doorbell. Good Apparently, job. And Tintin. it's the same apartment building. It is. So it's strange that, uh, and it almost looks like the doorbell has moved to the other side of the door as well. Mm-hmm. On the, in the other book, it was on the right-hand side. Now it looks like it's on the left-hand side of the door. And let me call. Maybe that's because there's three different doorbells. There's the two. <laughs> there is. On the right side, there's two. On the left side, there's one. And let me compliment the hand that's ringing it. Very nicely drawn fingers. Mm-hmm. At the door, it is Thompson and Thompson. Uh, oh, very nice. How are how are you? Uh, and uh, it looks like uh, we're they're actually... a little full of themselves because they solved the mystery without Tintin. Very nice, and they're also back to the thing I like doing, which is the to be precise joke okay. the way I like it. See, this because this book was translated much later than the other mm-hmm. books. Uh, which the thing is like, all right, all right, we can't deny that we're right as ever. Quite right, quite right. To be precise, we deny that we're ever right. Ha <laughs> ha! Just as usual, eh? And we've established what the characters are like. Well done. <laughs> Yes. So they talk about the the paper and how uh, you know Tintin thinks you know it could still be coincidence and uh, you know uh, one Thompson says nope you know uh, there's more to it than uh, co- coincidence you know uh, you're probably right says Tintin but how can he how can he prove it how can he prove it with this uh, mysterious illness yes and you can take it for a bit here me yeah. okay so the uh, Thompsons then explain that uh, basically the these uh, Explorers have been found all be in a sleep, be sleeping, not really in a coma. They're actually sleeping. Right. And beside them, in the cases that they found so far, there is uh, shards of glass uh, laying on the floor. Tintin is very interested in this, and I love his look of interest. <laughs> Just his cocked eyebrow in the uh, second panel and the second and the second tier. Mm-hmm. It's very well done. In fact, he keeps cocking it all the way through that whole uh, yeah. that whole page sequence of that hmm. day's run of. Uh, then they decide they're gonna they're gonna call the lab to find out if what the substance is that's on this glass. If there is a substance there, 
Unfortunately, their tests aren't done yet, so there's not much they can say about it. By the way, I like when, uh, again, Thompson is calling the labo- laboratory. Hello, Dr. Simpsons? This is Thompson. No, without a P, as in Venezuela. Yes, the analysis. Interesting. Let me just see what, uh, what does he say here? Dupont with a T, as in, oh, he says, he says here, oh, it says Dupont with a T, uh, as in, Theodule with a th sound, I guess. So that would yeah. be similar, but a little flip of a joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the English one is more nonsensical. <laughs> well, it's like one. it's a you know the, my word doesn't have a p in it, just like Venezuela doesn't. Yeah. Anyway, that's nice. Uh, but then he gets a moment of shock where his hat flies straight up. Yeah. <laughs> nice, and uh, finds out that uh, Professor uh, Reduck, it's fantastic, found asleep in his bath. Uh, they discovered some crystal fragments. Incredible, I say. Uh, how is the analysis getting uh, getting on? Have you... Nope, nothing quite definite. They've established that the glass particles come from little crystal balls. Uh, probably contains the substance uh, which sent the unfortunate victims into a coma. Substance? They've got absolutely no idea. Yeah. I don't know what it is. No, mysterious. Uh, goodbye. And, it's defeating uh, all the tests. And then uh, we got to Thompson saying, I can't believe it. Professor Bathtub found us sleep in the reeds. Of course, it's the flip with the words. It's Reedbuck, and ah, there you go. It's good stuff. Uh, so uh, Tintin wants to warn the other members of the expedition. Yes. So I guess they're gonna well, see. They're gonna call uh, Mark Charlet. I guess he is uh, Falconer in the English yep. version. Mark Falconer. Yes. Which is a great name. It is a great name. But it's Marc Charlet in the uh, French one. Okay. What I like is, I don't know if it's the same in the English one, in the in the uh, French version, Tintin is standing, thinking, Tintin, or Snowy's looking at him like, uh, he's a good guy. And then in the back, the Thompsons are saying hello or allo five times into the phone, which yeah. seems, uh, that's not how you dial a phone. And really, you should wait till someone answers it. Yes. Is my opinion of the L.O. But here's the thing. He's actually talking into a walking stick because <laughs> they're complete idiots. <laughs> However smart they became in their newspaper strip. They were that smart. Nope. This, this is... <laughs> it's all drained out and now complete and utter uh, boobs. Oh, that's good, though. Yep. Uh, I hate to interfere, says Tintin, but I try using that phone you've got on your arm instead. <laughs> Uh, and he does. Is this Mark Falconer? And uh, a, a great uh, shot of uh, yeah, once... Falconer speaking with uh, many dead animals around him. Yes, another great Jacobs touch. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna attribute this to Jacobs. Okay. Uh, so just because every... we've never seen it before, we've never seen a room like this True. in in our readings. I mean, it's possible that Hergé was expanding his his palette and and uh, I mean he did take some major steps forward with Red Rackham's treasure I think in terms of his uh, draftsmanship so it's possible I don't want to I don't want to give Jacobs all the credit right so uh, so he's uh, they're telling him about what Professor Reedbuck too uh, crystal fragments by Jupiter he was telling the truth who an old Indian who got drunk on cocoa one night he told me no I can't explain over the telephone no I'll come along and see you ugh this is the worst idea anyone has in a, in a mystery is to to not tell what the problem is on the phone. That's and right. To tell the problem immediately. As soon as you can, tell the problem. I mean, it's going to happen to you anyway. Yeah, it's I'll inevitable. Be, I'll be right there with the mystery. Yeah. Uh, important things, 
that I'll tell you. It's inevitable that you will be cut off before you can tell the answer. But Don't you might as well save yourself the time and trouble of getting a taxi. Anyway, Dave, I'm going to tell you about uh, who uh, who's the murderer. Anyway, I'm going to just get a cab right now. Yeah. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. <laughs> That's right. Good luck. I could tell you right now. Yep, you could. No reason not to. No, Absolutely no reason not, not gonna... to. Anyway, I'll see you in a bit. That's fine. Sounds good to me. Okay, I'll tell you all the information. I'm going to squeal on everybody. <laughs> see you in a bit. I... Taxi, please. Finally, the mystery will be solved. Okay. Actually, I, I was listening to an episode of Johnny Dollar, the old radio show, and someone said that to him. I'll call you. You know, I'll get a cab and I'll come in. I can't tell you over the phone. I have to tell you this in person. He says, that never works out. <laughs> and I like that because it was really recognizing the fact that that had become... What's a, the full name of Johnny Dollar? The, Johnny Dollar, something for hire. Uh, no, no. With the, with the all expense paid, something about bank Insurance account. investigator. With? the uh, With the... With like the golden bank account. I can't, or the, it's... it's Credit report. <laughs> no, no. I can't remember what it is now. Yeah, they changed it over time. It, oh, that, it's fantastic. It's an expense account. Expense account. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Just an amazing. Like, they they bragged massage. about his expense account. Well, it wasn't that. They were boasting that he was able to massage his expense account to include all kinds of, of expenses that really should not have been included. Okay. So while uh, Falconer is coming to uh, see Thompson and Thompson, uh, Tintin decides he's going to warn Professor uh, Cantano. Cantano, yeah. Who we last saw. Or first saw in the shooting star, he was a member of the expedition that was going to uh, find the the comet. In ah, fact, very good. In fact, he has about as many lines as this as he had in the shooting star. This actually reminds me of the first appearance of the Joker, uh, which was a story about like the there was uh, the Joker said, "I'm going to kill all these people at midnight," and everyone kept trying to uh, save the people, and they kept messing up. Yeah, and they'd always be behind a desk, and then it'd be slumped up over the desk. But in the joke, in the case with the Joker, with a big smile on their face. Yeah. Yeah. This is the original Batman, like the very first appearance? This of... was the very first appearance of the Joker. Wow. Horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, would be about the same time as this story. Uh, so, okay. Uh, uh, Tintin's trying to call him. Uh, but great, snakes. I can't get through. I must keep trying. Uh, see Falconer uh, get, bringing his gun with him. That's smart, at least. Uh, off he goes. And he's uh, also fa- wearing plus fours. He's like a grown-up version of Tintin. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, then uh, Tintin does, in fact, get uh, a hold of Cantonon. Uh What's the matter? Uh, no, I haven't heard anything. Oh, I think uh, things are going to be fine. I should be on my guard. Oh! <laughs> Smash! What? Uh, and we see that Cantano, uh, uh something has come through his window. looks like a brick. Uh, he is now uh, asleep or uh, unconscious or something terrible. Uh, Tintin uh, has heard this and uh, heads out. Yes. Running out with Snowy. We get just get a, get a brief glimpse of him pulling on his, his overcoat. Ah, you just, just like him putting on that coat. Off he goes. Uh, and he uh, he gets outside just as Falconer is pulling up. And uh, we see that Falconer is, in fact, asleep in the back with crystal fragments yes. on the ground. And his pipe. And his pipe. He lost his pipe. It's that's terrible. right. That's, uh, how, that's how tragic this is. Yeah, the taxi driver uh, remembers another taxi drew up alongside him uh, when the light stopped and then moved off. Uh, he tells the taxi driver, go upstairs, Ta- tell the Thompsons your story. Uh, I'm off to warn uh, Dr. Midge, right Oh, And Tintin <laughs> goes off. In uh, French, he's Professor Hornet. Ah, <laughs> very Orne. nice. So, uh, so Tintin goes running off. I think at this point you could, you know, maybe just take that cab, but that's just me. Just drive it. You know. Well, it's got a man and it's got a guy in uh, sleep in the back. Yeah, that's true. You got to like leave him there. It just seems like it's you got to get there fast. There must be a way. Anyway, maybe then wait for them to come down and get the guy out. So I guess mm. he couldn't. Yeah, time time is money. Off he runs. Uh, so we see a series of headlines about the mystery of the crystal balls and Inca Tutankhamun, uh, vengeance of Raskar Kapak. 
you know, are they uh, mysterious crystal balls? And we're uh, and now we're up to speed. Yeah. We see the captain. He is listening to the radio. Say, who it says, of the seven explorers who took part in the expedition, only Dr. Midge and Professor Tarragon have escaped the fate of their colleagues. A day and night police watch has been kept on their homes. And on the officer, uh, and on the office of Dr. Midge, director of the Darwin Museum. So hmm. uh, now we cut to the Darwin Museum, which is a museum being enjoyed by older gentlemen and young girls as they leave. Yes. A grandpa and his, his I'm going to say a grandpa and his granddaughter. Fantastic. So, uh, or the uh, Belgian version of Colonel Sanders, a delivery man is coming into the uh, building dressed more and dressed in a better uniform than the Thompsons wear. Oh, it's nice with a cape, big sweeping cape, nice hat. Yeah, very nice. Uh, of course, Thompson's there with his, uh, with his, with his cane, threatening that he'll fire. Yes. Uh, How could he fire? That's a phone. That's <laughs> yes, exactly right. The uh, messenger says there's a uh, he has a package for for Mister, but Professor Hor- Hornet or Professor Doctor Mitch. Doctor Mitch, there you go. And then this, he says, "That's fine. Come in." Oh, exciting! Says Doctor Mitch. Wait a minute, says Thompson. Uh, it's, uh, it could be a booby trap. Uh, I, it's my job to open it for you. Very brave. Yeah. Calls the other Thompson in who's waiting outside the window guarding it. And yeah. uh, then goes, hey, you open it. <laughs> They're sweating away. Yeah. Uh, they open it. They and shakily open it. It's a beautiful uh, butterfly. Yeah. There. Very lovely. Yeah. Captured in Java. Uh, you know, but between ourselves, let's face it, it was a narrow escape. Between ourselves, to be precise, I agree. Uh, then Tintin shows up. And uh, and uh, Thompson brags that, you know, we've uh, taken care of everything. I'm guarding the window. You're guarding the window, you <laughs> yeah. say. You don't seem to be, oh, no, inside you go. And, uh, yep. Does uh, Thompson say great snakes? Uh, does Thompson, uh, great Scotland Yard. Oh, okay. Because I wonder, because he says Sapristi here. So. so they go inside, and yes, indeed, he the professor is asleep. Dr. Midge. Yep, the, the, the glass has been smashed, uh, and uh, we, you know, we have trouble there. So uh, Tintin runs out into the nearby uh, bushes, uh, trees, to search. Uh, Snowy is also there. Uh, Tintin trips on some wires. Yeah, Uh, his arms strangely lengthen. Yes, that's true. Uh, But it looks like Snowy was just chasing a cat again. Ugh, Snowy. Snowy. What are you, some kind of dog? What a character. Oh, that guy. Interesting, on the top of page 25, it's uh, someone's holding their hand, La Depeche. Which was a rival newspaper to Le Soir in Brussels at that time. Very good. We do not have that in the English version. And uh, what was interesting is that um, Hergé, who, of course, drew for Le Soir, had his cartoon running in Le Soir, never had anybody reading Le Soir in any of his stories. Hmm. It was almost like a little dig at what Le Soir had become, that no one and no one had ever shown reading it in the stories. A little bit of uh, commentary on the side. So the headline of the paper is Mystery of the Crystal Balls. Uh, director of the Darwin Museum is new victim, Dr. Midge in coma. The way they've put, laid out all this typeface isn't the best, actually, here, just because it's... you got a paper that's uh, mm-hmm. kind of buckled that's, and... That's uh, why it's better when it's hand-lettered. I would, uh, I would agree with you. Uh, Captain is reading uh, the newspaper next to uh, Professor Calculus. And again, I will throw it over to you. Oh, no, that's okay. Because there's a lot of speaking here, and I, I, it's hard for me to translate on the... On Understood. So the captain is extra. I just don't want people getting tired of my voice. Okay, well, as okay, much as I, I'll, it's okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, uh, let's. I, I, I do it. It's cool. Uh, extraordinary, quite extraordinary. Another victim. Hmm, it's amazing. No, I think it's a little to the left. No, I said another victim. Here is the newspaper. The director of the Darwin Museum, uh, Darwin Midge. Not yet. I'm sure we'll get there in the end. And it's a lot of that business yeah, going yeah, along yeah. here. 
finally, the, the, the calculus reads it. Ah, oh, have you seen this story? That's, of course, the story that I was just reading. And there, oh boy. Some good cigar puffing from yeah, Haddock. Why did this mysterious Avenger not kill his victims on the spot, says Calculus? Why instead plunge them into a profound sleep? A sleep which says a medical opinion could be prolonged for an indefinite period without imperiling their lives. Hmm. <laughs> Ring goes the door and it's uh, Tintin uh, being welcomed in by Nestor. And oh, oh, there goes Snowy. Oh, it's a cat. And yeah, he hisses him and Snowy leaves. Yeah. No, he, uh, immediately. That's funny. It was like a one-day gag strip. Yep. Fair enough. Uh, now, a prof- uh, Captain is back to being kind of a fancy man. Uh, coming back down with his monocle. Oh, my dear fellow. Oh, very nice. Hmm. Hmm. Seems very thirsty. And Howell the Third leads did, him back up. To did he ever see- stop being a fancy man? I don't know. Oh, yes, he does. In the story? But, I mean, in, in this part of the story, he's out, he, we never see him not being fancy. Well, I mean, he goes into his swearing jags whenever anything goes. goes well, yeah, that's just to be, t- that's, a, we know that, but just the way he's dressed and stuff, like wearing his, uh, his kind of fancy sports jacket, his checked sports jacket. Yeah, actually, the outfit that he's got on the cover of this, uh, I would wear that outfit. That looks really nice. Yeah, well, he's wearing it in the, in this part of the Yeah, story. that'd be very, that's a very sharp looking, uh, outfit. Um, because now it's decided that they should go and, uh, call on a friend of Calculus, Professor. Tarragon in yours, right? Yep. Monsieur Bergamot in mine, but uh, it's whatever. They drive there. It's like a fortress. Yeah. But it's a similar drawing of the car. If we go back a little bit and look at them driving home at night from the theater, mm-hmm. it's the exact same angle drawing of the car, only it's at night in this in, in daytime in this drawing. Sure. Uh, they come up. There's the police. There's only so many photo references you've got. Exactly. There's a police guarding the gate of the uh, house. More competent than the police that we normally see. <laughs> yes. I like that, though, when they come in, they, we see them on the top of the page, they're walking up the steps to the house, and there's this kind of mustachio gentleman hiding in the bushes. Yes. Which seems like he's a villain, not... not uh, when well, I first saw him, I thought, who's that guy sneaking, skulking in the bushes? But oh, no, it's Well, there's man. another guy in the other bush. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't. Oh, then the other guy's a better ninja he than the first better. guy. Yeah, he's much better. <laughs> the other guy was, just drew all my attention. Ah, that's the point. You get a fancy man with a mustache in the bush. You that's don't notice the second man in the bush. Very that's clever. who gets you. Very clever. That's the old mustache bush trick. So they enter the house, and we, we meet Professor Tarragon, who is a hulking man. Yes, he will lift you straight up off the ground. First name he'll, Hercules, so we know that he's... crush your hands Her- while he shakes your hand. Hercules Tarragon. Yeah. Uh, yes, he picks, he lifts uh, Calculus up in the air in greeting, and then proceeds to pulverize... Haddock's hand. Paul, uh, Haddock, of course, loses his monocle once again, and then he then he also performs the same operation on Tintin's hand. Uh, both of them wince in pain. Then Snowy comes barking. Yeah, what's the what's the matter? What's going on? <laughs> he would be played by Brian Blessed, by the way, in the That's live right. action version That's of the, right. of he the would. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the culprit. Our friend Raskar Kapak frightened your dog. Yes, yeah. we see we see the mummy in the case. Like I said, this was actually drawn uh, from a a reference of the mummy in the collection in the, in Brussels. Uh, but what's f- interesting is it was also from the exact same collection where the uh, re- the the um, fetish that they used for, for Sir Francis Haddock on the island in Red Rackham's treasure was from the same collection. So, mm. yeah, they had limited, uh, limited re- research because they were living in an occupied country. So uh, a giant boom is heard. You know, uh, what about that? We were just talking about Raskar Kapak, he who unleashes the fire of heaven, and I think is going to oblige. Look, hmm, and it's a big kind of st- uh, windy storm outside. Yeah. 
You know, uh, uh, Hercules, uh, you know, Tarragon says, I got an open car, if I were you. Uh, you have an open car, I believe. If I were you, I would uh, cover it up. Looks like a storm's coming. Yeah, so they show an outside shot of the house. And actually, this was... Uh, Jacob's found this real house in, in uh, Boisfort where where um, Hergé lived. He had bought a house in a kind of a suburb outside of Brussels. And they this found this house, which looked like it was abandoned. So they spent a lot of time out front doing drawings of it, doing sketches of it to, to get it. And just as they had packed up and ready to go, uh, a couple of cars drove up and all these Nazi soldiers got out. And it turned out it was SS headquarters, Oh, which they didn't know. So they'd been sitting there drawing this SS headquarters. They could have gotten in real trouble, but uh, luckily they packed up before before everyone showed up. Yikes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then all of a sudden, uh, two bangs are heard. Uh, Tintin runs out again into the kind of bushy area up front and then to the front gate. You know, what were those two shots? You know, they weren't shots, uh, say the police officers. You made the mistake of leaving your car in the blazing sun. Look, your tires have burst. Now, they spelled That's a weird thing. They spelled the tires here with T-Y-R-E-S. That's British. Is it? It's British spelling, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Because in the French, they spelled it P-N-E-U-S. But, of course, that's French. Okay. So, uh, uh, t- uh, Captain Haddock, very upset about this. What you kind know, of tires? I, mean, I guess it's during the war. Were the tires noticeably worse than they ever were in the history of mankind? Like, I don't know. It seems a bizarre thing. It seems thing. A, thing, a strange thing that you can't leave a car parked in the sun. Like, what do people do? Put a little umbrellas around their car when they parked it in the... Yeah, and, and all your tires burst at once. That seems unrealistic. Yeah. Well, uh, no, the other ones are fine. Just the two on the side where the sun was shining. Right. So uh, uh, Haddock gets a little window uh, pane, not window pane, but window flap in the face. A shutter, yeah. Shutter? He shudders. Uh, the whole thing. Uh, here comes the rain, uh, you know, uh, and uh, the uh, thunder is booming, which uh, Calculus thinks means there's someone at the door. Oh, that guy. <laughs> He's not right. Uh, runs, well, you can't uh, hear it, too. It's just a dull thud. That's true. Uh, Tintin uh, runs in, and uh, Tarragon says, everything all right? Good, good. At any rate, uh, false alarm did prove that the house is well guarded. Hmm, yes. Uh, yes, it certainly seems to be. Uh, still, we must be careful. Uh, then uh, he, he shows him that he's drafted a paper on the occult practices of ancient Peru. It seems to have some bearing. I doubt it'll solve our problem. Uh, but look at this. It's a translation of part of the inscriptions carved on the walls of Raskar Kapak's tomb. You may like to read it. And I may like to read it right now. Here it is. <laughs> After many moons will come seven strangers with pale faces. They will profane the sacred dwellings of he who unleashes the fire of heaven. These vandals will carry the body of the Inca to their own far country. But the curse of the gods will be as their shadow and pursue them over land and sea. But but wait, this is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Now read the next bit. And now we get the scene from the cover. Lightning strikes the chimney, and ball lightning, it seems, comes down. We get the scene from the cover and the scene from the broken ear. Oh, very good. Uh, comes comes uh, into the room. Everyone jumps back as ball lightning chases Snowy. <laughs> it knocks over uh, Tarragon, uh, churning his clothes into tatters, uh, chasing again Snowy into the fireplace. Uh, Snowy smashing his head on the uh, the back of the fireplace, but the ball lightning turns. Uh, uh, Snowy covered in soot. It starts heading towards uh, Calculus. Uh, loops around Calculus many times, lifting him into the air. He lands the landing his chair from the ground onto a table. It runs over to it doesn't run bounces over uh, towards uh, he who releases unleashes the fire of heaven with a giant bang and the mummy is gone. That's just a great sequence, by the way. It is fantastically done. Oh, by the way, the uh, Calculus's hat blows off in this and lands on uh, Tarragon's head. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it is very it's very well done uh, scene. Yeah, beautif- everyone, beautifully drawn. Everyone's quite shocked at the mummy being gone. Yes. Uh, the uh, and then Tintin reaped the rest of the translation. And uh, Tarragon is quite demoralized by what seems to be this prophecy coming true. Mm-hmm. He's uh, yeah, your man of science, seeing this kind of thing. It must be hard. Uh, there will come a day when Raskar Kapak will bring down himself the cleansing fire. In one moment of flame, he will return to his true element. On that day, uh, will punishment descend upon the desecrators. And uh, Calculus takes this moment to get his hat back. Yes. Yeah. Interestingly, in the it's as I said before, his name is Bergmal, but his first name is Hippolyte in the uh, in the French version. Uh, so, should we move on to later that night? Please. We have Tintin laying in bed in the dark, sleeping, but he's not sleeping well. His eyes are clenched. Can you clench your eyes? Anyway, mm-hmm. his eyes are clenched. If they're, if they're little black dots, it might be hard. Yeah, I don't know. And he's sweating or the stress uh, beads are, are pouring from his, from his head. And very creepy. The yeah. mummy's at the window. The That's at- creepy. And then starts coming in. If you're a kid reading this, yeah. that is pretty terrifying. Yeah. That nice close-up shot of him yeah. smiling evilly, lifting the crystal ball good over teeth, his head. by the way, on that mummy, you know? Kept his teeth good uh, over the uh, decades. Yeah. Throws the crystal ball down and smashes it. Tintin wakens with a start and looks over to notice there is glass on the floor, but the window was swung open in the wind and smashed, leaving shards of glass on the floor and also knocking over a vase on, the, on a nearby st- uh, stand and spilling water so yes then as he closes the window he hears a cry for help it's the voice of the captain he runs down the hallway finds the captain fallen having fallen out of bed laying on the floor holding his head he had the same dream as tintin yeah he also dreamt of a mummy coming into his room and throwing a crystal ball on the, mm. on the floor then they hear calculus yelling they run out to the hallway and of course being calculus haddock and calculus smash into each other we discover that calculus had the same dream he dreamt that he saw a mummy in his room, and he threw down a, a, a crystal ball. Very creepy. Uh, now Snowy is seeing something in the hall, or smelling something, or something. Snowy, look at Snowy. Uh, he smelt something. Uh, Captain goes after him, uh, trips on the carpet, and falls down the stairs. Yes. Yeah, with a pot, a pot and, of plant landing on his head. And I gotta say that his, the uh, fourth or the second panel of him in the bottom there of him landing, his legs look really weird. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's like he doesn't have any buttocks. I think that's the problem. Maybe so, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of strangely drawn. I would agree. Up to that point, it's quite a well-done uh, falling sequence. Yeah, well, it's interesting because E.P. Jacobs loved Hergé. To, he loved his action drawings. Like He loved how he drew action. And so he always encouraged him to do more and to do kind of really, you know, really kind of play it up. So maybe this is an example of that. Maybe Hergé was doing a little too much. So Snowy uh, is, uh, is sniffing against a wall or maybe a, do- a door. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, one of the police officers says, uh, "What's going on?" Uh, I don't know. Snowy became howling, uh, howling outside of Professor Tarragon's door. They knock on the door, and uh, nothing's going on. We better break it down. They break it down, go in, and oh, false alarm! He was just fast asleep. But they realize, wait, there's fragments of the crystal on the ground, and uh, and try to wake him up. Nope, nothing can be done. The crystal ball has done its work. Claim the last of the seven. Wow. He is. And what's what's interesting is that he is he is just sleeping. He's in French. The French uh, 
sound effect for sleeping was to rate Ron with with lots of R's. Oh, okay. Not they didn't use the Z sound. They didn't use the Z sound effect. They just used a wrong wrong, which I kind of like actually. It does kind of sound like sleeping to me. Sure. Uh, but uh, they check for the intruder uh, at the window. But nope, the window is and shutter are closed tight. You know, uh, uh, but but then Snowy notices, you know, uh, that uh, he probably came down the chimney. Uh, both uh, Tintin and Snowy look up the chimney and get a whole bunch of ash in the face. Yes. Yeah, it looks great, yep. by the way. Good stuff. And what's nice is it isn't played up in a, in a bad way. Yep, you could sure could be, but it sure ain't. Uh, so they uh, wipe their faces, uh, try to search the roof, and they spot in the uh, woods outside of the house a uh, man running away. A uh, gun is drawn. Sh- uh, the man is shot in some way. He's hit. He's fallen. Uh, out runs Tintin and the uh, police officer and the captain out searching. Uh, uh, Snowy unfortunately can't smell anything because his uh, nose is still covered in soot. And they hear a scream. Yes. It was Professor Terrigan uh, back up to his room uh, where he screams, Mercy! Mercy! They've come back. Uh, they're going to smother me. Keep away, you devils. They'll tear me to pieces. Uh, and then back out again. Yeah. He's, and then, of course, they call a doctor to come and look at him the next morning. The doctor comes. I like that he says he's in a complete coma, that he's absolutely uh, inert or motionless. And then uh, Tarragon immediately has his uh, spasm, some sort of spasm, clonks a doctor on the chin with his knee and knocks him unconscious. Yep. Poor doctor. Yeah. He didn't know he was in a Tintin story and was going to get hit in the head. <laughs> That's right. That's the first thing that happens to you in a, in a Tintin story. Once again, he's uh, yelling that they're coming back. They'll start again, tormenting me. Uh, they're coming. Get away, you torturers. Help. Help. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, this is not good for him. He's just an absolute uh, horror. And then we have Calculus, of course, living in his own world, decides he's going to go for a walk in the garden and behaves in a way that i got to say is quite kind of childish or strange. He's doing his pendulum thing, which we know he likes to do his divining or dousing. Yeah. Then he finds a gold bracelet on the ground. And his first thought, which is natural, is to put it on his own wrist and see if anyone will notice it. <laughs> That's what he says. I'll wear this on my wrist and see if anyone notices that I'm wearing a gold bracelet. Yeah, it goes really well with his coat. Yeah. Very happy. So then uh, he goes walking. Now, Tintin goes out to see if he can find uh, Calculus. He walks, runs around, can't see where he is. Checks upstairs in the house, not there. Sees, uh, goes outside, sees some uh, a handprint of uh, blood. It looks like, yeah, uh, on a tree very high. Goes up to check that out. Uh, uh, Captain gives him a gun to take with him. Uh, cracks a branch off while climbing, which uh, knocks the captain in the noodle. <laughs> and then, Naturally. And then uh, Tintin spots something over there to the right, more to the right. Yep, there you go. There you got it. It's Calculus's umbrella. Yeah, but where is? Calculus. So they're going, they're looking around, uh, uh, trying to get Snowy to seek him out. <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden, uh, two gunshots go off. Uh, Tintin yells, uh, take cover. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it's coming from, is it from uh, a house or the house? I think or it's like what? a gatehouse. Or... Gatehouse. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they uh, both uh, Tintin and uh, the captain, oh, the, uh, Tintin throws uh, the captain his uh, gun uh, while Tintin's going to crawl around to the summer house. Uh, you fire a shot from time to time, and here you go. So uh, that's the plan. Uh, but people are still shooting at the captain as Tintin crawls towards the house. Uh, Snowy spots a bone, grabs the bone. Ha <laughs> ha! Smart work, he says. Yes. As the bone is shot out of his mouth. 
uh, one I was one thing is in, interesting on this page to me is how well posed everybody is, mm-hmm. and that's something that also that was good about Jacob's coming was that Erge had someone he could get to pose for him and, and draw from life, so he could get more natural, more you know better poses. So like the shot of Tintin crawling on the ground, that's difficult to pull off, and it looks really good. So I, I think it's just a you know just a helpful was to have someone there that he could get to you know just lay on the ground. I'm just gonna yeah. I'm just gonna draw you crawling around. I love how Tintin solves the problem with the gun as he runs around. This guy can't notice him, of course, because he's shooting out of a out of a narrow aperture in the door. And so Tintin's able to run around without him noticing, carrying a, a branch. He approaches this house, and as the gun's sticking out the out this hole, he smashes the branch down onto the gun and knocks it out of the out of the the uh, bad guy's hand. So then the captain runs over. They quickly smash through the door, find the windows are open. To this kind of a mysterious place because it opens out onto the road. Yeah, and they see a car driving off. Tintin right. attempts to shoot at the t- tires. The gun is empty. The magazine is empty. He ch- attempts to grab the captain. The captain has the same problem. There's no bullets left in his gun either. They've escaped. Uh, what can we do now? Well, they call the police, uh, telling telling them uh, the make of the car and the registration number. You know, off uh, off the police go, uh, and uh, we see that the captain is very concerned. The brutes kidnapping calculus, and why may I ask, what possible reason could they have for kidnapping poor Cuthbert? So we see, well, maybe he cares about him a bit. That's kind yeah, of interesting. Yeah, so, we know the reason that he was kidnapped was because there were people that didn't like the can't hear things jokes. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and don't like people with fancy gold bracelets. They put they put out a reward. So uh, the uh, the car is driving along. Uh, a police officer tries to stop him. Uh, does not stop at all, keeps driving, and I like that it basically the police officer turns into Inspector Clouseau with the swine. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, police call uh, that the car is passed by in a high speed. Now get that roadblock in place. So, in fact, they do. Uh, a couple of cars come by, neither of which oh, is. Oh, that's funny because in this version it says uh, there is there is a roadblock. Good, that's good. So. Oh, wait, yeah, you've got a roadblock in position. Good, okay. You're correct. Okay. Uh, so there's a car coming at the roadblock, uh, but no, it's it's not. I love uh, those motorcycles, and I love their uniforms, too, especially the policemen's helmets. The, yes. uh, r- the The motorcycle cops' helmets are great. No, a couple of stops, but no dice, no one's uh, no no black car. Uh, but don't again. you feel like that one, that that's very suspicious, the people driving that car? Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, otherwise, why are we seeing them? There's no reason. Well, they do show the one guy. Yeah, quite. we'll see. Maybe we'll see him in the future. Let's shoot. Uh, so uh, uh, back to the house. Uh, ooh, Haddock is upset about the kidnapping of Calculus. You know why pick on Calculus, and why did he have to go walking in the garden anyway? Yeah. So uh, so then the police go along. I'll again. I'll throw it to you. Yeah, the police come now. They're the police ride up on their bicycles, which seems rather inefficient, but that's what they have, and say, you know, haven't they shown up yet? They passed us. You know, they passed us a long time ago, and so. The motorcycle policeman then decides he's going to race up the road to see if he can see any problem. He finds a farmer walking down the road carrying a shovel and a pitchfork, as farmers are wont to do. <laughs> and uh, Otherwise, how'd you know he's a farmer? Exactly. And he tells him, oh, I just passed, uh, I saw someone turn into the the uh, trees up down the road. So the cop then turns around, goes driving down, finds the car abandoned on the side of the road. At that moment, uh, Tintin and, and Haddock receive a phone call telling them what's going on. They decide they're going to go over there to investigate, leaving us to ask the question, how did they get their tires fixed? <laughs> when in all the story and all this adventure 
Have they had a chance to take the car into the garage to get the tires replaced? But okay. Well, well, into the garage. I mean, I'm sure at Marlin Spike, there's tires. Oh, yeah, just laying all over the place. Yes, I'm sure. It's a huge house. I'm sure they've got... Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a chauffeur. Sure, who've... there's matching tires there that you could balance yourself. Yeah. I'm sure that Nestor knows how to oh, do Oh, yeah. It. I'm sure he's got a well experienced in how Nestor to change Nestor can do it. Don't tell me Nestor can't do it. Anyway... So well, moving you on. do need to professionally balance your tires when you get when you change All tires right. in a car. Sure, I'm saying, look, Nestor can do amazing. Unless they things. were, unless they were already balanced and were sitting in the carport, okay, or in the garage. Well, Maybe you're right. You can write an angry letter back to the past. I am and... going to to ask Hershey what he was thinking of here. Fair enough. Pulling one over, pulling one over on me. Good luck. That's right. Great snake. So uh, Tintin says, let's just hop in the car and uh, try to learn something over there. They drive over to where the car is. I'm still find upset. It, there you go. Find it abandoned. Uh, and uh, the captain uh, says, uh, uh, well, Sherlock Holmes to uh, Tintin, have you found anything? This is not the first time nor the last time probably that uh, Tintin will be called Sherlock Yeah, but he usually gets that from Snowy. This time he's getting it from the captain. The captain is stealing Snowy's lines now. That's right. That's how low Snowy has fallen. So Tintin's asking the police officer, have you seen a large fawn-colored car go by? What, what is fawn-colored? Like a beige. Beige, so it's because like a deer? Colored? Yeah, okay. like a deer color, yeah. Well, um, oh, yeah, right. A fawn car did pass by us. I stopped like it dark myself. dark beige is how I describe it. You didn't think of taking the, the number? No, why should I? Well, and Tintin explains uh, that there's uh, some paint uh, there against a tree. Uh, that's great by. Ah, so they switch cars, says the captain. Ah, come on. We must uh, pass all this on to the police at once, says Tintin. Perhaps they'll be able to catch them. Next morning, Tintin is once reading again, the paper. Having his breakfast. He had a pretty full breakfast there. He's got some, uh, looks like some apples. He's got an egg. Some grapes. Boiled eggs. Boiled egg, of course, a boiled egg. He looks like he's eaten his toast already. His toast is gone, and he had some cheese, I guess, cause he, or maybe that was butter that's on that little board there. I don't know. Could exactly. very well be. You know what? Yeah, Tintin, does, mail. Tintin does a lot in a day, and he doesn't have time to stop for lunch. So no, this makes sense. he has sense. a hearty breakfast. That's true enough. He gets a phone call from the Thompsons asking right. him to come down to the hospital because something strange is going on there. Right. All of the patients are having seizures at the same time uh, as they do every day. Uh, and so we go and we see that this is, in fact, uh, the case. And it's a really creepy looking scene. Uh, all the hospital beds and everyone, uh, all the victims thrashing around at the same time. Terrible. Uh, all happening at 1030 in the morning. Yes. Now, uh... Of course, this is the the album. The newspaper would not have had a, f- a half-page spread of the hospital scene. Right. So this probably was divided into four. Either it was divided into four pieces, or the uh, preceding three panels were stretched out to fill the top, and then they just they did the last panel as a large full-page spread. Now, in terms of uh, in terms of the story. Hmm. This was published, this page, this last, this last tier was published uh, on September 2nd, 1944. The next day, the um, English came in, to, uh, liberated Belgium, liberated Brussels, the city of Brussels. The Germans were forced out. They, of course, abandoned Le Soir. They ran away. And there, the, all the newspapers were shut down by the British. And that was the last time that uh, Hergé was published in Le Soir. And that was the last time he was published for two years. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So, so what happened was uh, on this, that day, on Sunday, September the 3rd, the day after this was published, yeah. Hergé was arrested at home. 
some men that showed up at his home, it was 17, number 17 Avenue de Lure in Boisfort, and they arrested, not, not Hergé, but Georges Remy. That was the name they were given. So what happened is the Germans are gone. The Which British, was his name? Was that George Remy, that's right, her, yeah. was his real name, name yeah. yeah. Uh, now what happened is, you know, the British came in, the Germans left. Immediately there's a power vacuum because you haven't established uh, any kind of leadership or any kind of control. Everyone's still fighting. There's still, you know, probably small arms fighting in the streets and stuff like that mm-hmm. as the Germans are, are leaving one end of the city and the, the British are coming in the other side and forcing the Germans on, on, on their way. Um, so what happened was in this, in this uh, power vacuum is the Belgians turn on each other. You know, and it was a terrible thing. I mean, the British soldiers were disgusted by what happened over the next little while. There was a there was a kind of a pamphlet or bulletin published for resistance fighters called "L'Insoumis," uh, which meant the undefeated. And in one of their one of their more recent bulletins, they published uh, a they had a list called the Gallery of Traitors, and what it was was a list of everyone who worked for Le Soir Volé. So there were forty people named in this pamphlet and it basically said you know arrest these people or do whatever you can i mean this is this wasn't new there already were collaborators being killed by the resistance this was all all, an ongoing thing i mean any time if somebody wanted to they could have killed Hergé uh in as a retaliation for him working for a german newspaper um so in this pamphlet they provided photos names addresses and sort of biographical detail about all these different journalists, and basically said, get them. And so the very first day, you know, once the Germans are gone, the very first day, Hergé is arrested by these people. Uh, He's set free, but it happened four more times. He was arrested by state security, by the judiciary police, by the Front for Independence, by another group of, of resistance fighters, you know, and... Not only was he arrested, Jacobs was arrested, mm-hmm. uh, his friend and fellow uh, Lassoir Jeunesse workers, uh, Paul Germain was arrested, uh, Jacques van Melkebeek was arrested, uh, Father Ouellet was arrested in his monastery. Like, there was lots of retaliation going on Why at this was time. Why father, was the father arrested? Because what, 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 what happened was... He was is, retired, right? Yes, he was retired, but you have to understand that uh, you know, there was very little resistance to the Germans from the far right. Uh-huh. You know, the People who were fascist in, in tendency were working with the Germans. There was, there was a royalist, there was a royalist resistance group that was fighting. Right. That kind of countered the communist resist, resistance groups. But mostly it was, was the communists who made the biggest part of the resistance fighters against the Germans. Hergé was opposed to the resistance fighters because he felt that every time that they did anything to the Germans, all it ended up doing was that B- Belgian citizens would be killed. You know, because they would just retaliate in kind. And mm-hmm. it wouldn't be anyone who was involved in it. It would just be innocent people were were killed. Right. You know, so he just felt like it was not really helping the, anyone what was going on. Um, you know, you can disagree with him, but, that you know, that was basically it. Father Willet's arrests were insane. Like, his whole thing was insane. Like, he was accused of hiding a German radio transmitter in his high altar. He was uh, accused of taking his hunting rifle along to support his, the local German ACAC. Uh, batteries, you know, the guns that would fire up in the sky the, yeah. to hit the bombers. Uh, he was accused of sheltering Mussolini in his cell at the monastery. Uh, he was he, also, 
he was accused of because he had a small patch of rapeseed, like of canola in his uh, garden. It was said he was uh, growing fuel for the Luftwaffe. So, and it was just, I mean, this was just, it was, all it was was getting back at people. This was just political, yeah. get, you know, getting back at it. And his trials went on into the 50s. Like, it right. just went on and on. Because, you know, so you have the, the, so the people, the politicians in exile that are coming back are mostly like socialists, communists who are coming back to re- to form the new, the new government. So now it's just, it's a field day on all the, all the right wingers who stayed behind to collaborate with the Germans in some sort of, uh, either muddle-headed or mis- you know, not understanding what they were really dealing with. You know, people like, uh, we talked a lot about um, De Becker, the editor of Le Soir, thinking that there was some way that they were going to collaborate with the Germans and create some sort of space for Belgium to be its own country within this new this new empire that Germany was building, mm-hmm. you know, which was just completely foolish, you know. But they felt like by through collaboration that they were going to minimize the damage that was going to happen to Belgium. Right. You know, and... So when the the government exile returned, well, it just became there's this time for time for you know tit for tat, and yeah. So um, Erge himself, he spent some he spent a night in jail, uh, and was freed in the morning. When he was there, he met a fellow journalist. This uh, uh, he was an editor for a, a magazine called called Cassandra, I guess because Cassandra was a prophetess. Yeah, and uh, this guy, he. Was a f- he was afraid that he was going to get Prophetist like that no one listened to. Yes, that's right. He was the guy that you know. He thought, well, you know, I'm going to get some jail time out of this. This is going to be terrible. He was actually sentenced to death for his role as oh a my journalist. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just like, Leopold III was was forced into exile. You know, like here's a guy that the Germans arrested. Here's a guy who saved people by you know by personally interfering by going to Hitler and asking for, you know, for him to spare uh, Belgian women and children from being forced to work in the munitions factories, saved lives. You know, he was forced to go live in Switzerland, wasn't allowed back into the country for six more years. And even then they had a referendum that was so, that was so fraught, that was so, that was so, you know, had divisions on both sides that even when he was voted back in, was said, you know, we accept you as king again. He felt like he returning would be so divisive that he just passed the the crown to his son right. Baudouin, who took over as as king rather than he himself. Um, it was just it was just a crazy time. It was just a crazy time. Uh, what was one interesting thing? There was a newspaper called La Patrie, and it started publishing a parody of Tintin, called Tintin in the Land of the Nazis, basically saying that. Hergé was a Nazi, and he was helping the the Nazis develop the V two rockets. You know, it just became this. Uh, it became uh, just a crazy situation. So on September the sixth, all the employees of Le Soir were officially fired, and then on September the eighth, five days after they came into the country, the Allies, the Allied command, uh, put on the front of all the then publishing papers all. Um, all members of the editorial staff of a newspaper during the occupation are now forbidden to practice their occupation. That's what this notice said. So Erge and all these other journalists were effectively blacklisted now. It didn't matter what you wrote. If you were a theater reviewer or a sports journalist, you know, that even if you had nothing to do with, with the general you know, propaganda, you were banned from, from working again. So, and Erge himself, I mean, he... You know, we already read that letter from him. He kind of was joking about capital punishment. That was not what he was afraid of. What he was afraid of was 
the moral and social censure that he was going to be facing now from from society at large. And in fact, what happened was when the the government was in exile, is basically they said that everyone who lived in Belgium was would lose their citizenship. Right. And so they became what were called anciviques, so non-citizens of Belgium. They had no country. And in order to get, in order to be a citizen, you had to get a certificate of citizenship. But there were no rules in place on how you could get it. So it just became this corrupt circus of favoritism, payoffs, bribery, everything. People who actually deserved to be citizens couldn't get their citizenship because they didn't know the right people and didn't have the money to pay for them. People who in no way deserved to have their citizenship got their citizenship back because they had friends, had influential friends or because right. they had the money. And it was just ridiculous. And Erge at this time, he really, he fell out of love with Belgium. This is where his, you know, his former country that he loved so much, the king that he loved, the country that he loved, all his scout ideals died during this period. Um, he was just nauseated by the revenge, the denunciations, the opportunism and jealousy and the resentment and everything, the cowardice, everything about it was just, it was just like the worst period. It's just like the Kulak purges of, of the Soviet Union where people would just turn people in because they wanted what they had. You know, a farmer who was less successful because he worked less hard than his neighbor could turn his neighbor in to the, to the KGB and have this guy arrested as a Kulak and then he could, he could take over the farm. It was the same thing here. You wanted this guy's apartment. You thought his apartment was very nice, but he lived in it. Well, report him as a as a collaborator. He's taken off to prison. You get his apartment. All kinds of stuff went on like that, you know. And there were gangs roaming the streets, you know, beating up people, killing people, killing collaborators. There was uh, there was one evening in Beaufort, this the town that Erge lived in. There was this big mass rally of all these. People who are going to go out in, into the streets and and round up all these Anseviks who are being and collaborators who are being treated with kid gloves by the Namby Pamby government will show them what the rule of law is. And that night, uh, E.P. Jacobs came to visit Erge. Just showed up that night, you know, put his umbrella in its stand and sat the evening there chatting away. And it was only when he left that he said, well, "Actually, I came just to make sure that no one came to your door to attack you." Oh wow! Okay. You know, at least with me here. It, not just Hergé and his wife, Germaine, there was, there was another man there that could help deal with the situation. Uh, so now, so during this period, Hergé could no longer work for the newspapers. Casterman still was paying him and Jacobs to do the recoloring, the recasting, and reformatting of the, of the books. So that's what they spent most of their time doing recoloring the books, reformatting them, you know. And then they also uh, drew some perspective strips under the name Olaf, uh, to see if they could get them placed in the newspapers. Uh, but uh, Bernard Terry, who Hergé already suspected was useless, wasn't able to sell the strips. Mm. They, did a, they did a Western strip, an adventure strip set in the, in the far north, and then they did a detective story set in Shanghai as well. But none of them were able to, uh, they were able to place. So, and then in early 1945, Hergé uh, was finally became the subject of a, an official judicial inquiry into his work for uh, the German-sponsored newspaper. Because it wasn't just Le Soir. He was also at uh, the Het uh, Last News and then the Het Algemeine News, which were two of the Flemish-speaking newspapers that ran Tintin, and uh, Quick and Flupka. And so luckily for him, his case was assigned to... Uh, a guy who was favorable towards him, this guy named uh, Vinsot, who took over his, who was 
took over the case. And as far as Vinsot was concerned, uh, it would seem, it just seemed to him crazy that they were going to be prosecuting a guy who drew children's stories for collaborating with the Germans. Like he, to him, that was his kind of overall sense of it. He did note in his report, though, that Hergé, it was Hergé's drawings, his illustrations that made people buy the newspapers. And so just like the literary critics or the sports writers who created, you know, who brought people to the newspaper, Hergé was doing the same thing. He was bringing children in and other readers into this, into this paper who were reading German propaganda mm-hmm. as well as, as Tintin. So his report was kind of balanced in that way. But overall, he felt like there was no, it would be ridiculous. It would bring ridicule on the official tribunal, the military tribunal to, to, uh, to prosecute Hergé. So he submitted his report and then they had to wait because there was various levels of, of it. And Hergé, you know, he's bitter, uh, just hating all this that was going on. And he, but he had no choice. He just had to wait and see what happened. He really said to be fatalistic and see what, what the outcome was. So later in the year, in October, still not working, of course, just for Casterman, uh, in 1945, in October 1945, Hergé was visited by three men. One was Raymond LeBlanc. And Raymond LeBlanc was a decorated soldier. He had fought against the Nazis uh, and was part of the part of the soldiers who actually felt so- sold out by by the by the Belgian by the king, I guess, when the surrender was signed after only eighteen days of fighting. And he wrote a, a diary-based book about it called Loaded Dice. Um, and so he, a guy named Andre Sinov, who was a fellow resistance fighter. Oh, because. LeBlanc also fought for the resistance. He fought for the, the royalist branch of it. Uh, he fought for them. And then he also spent some time in, in London. Uh, so yeah, Anderson of another resistance fighter, and then a guy named Albert Debati, who was a journalist. They came to visit Hergé, and they had an idea. Now, they ran a small publishing house. They published a few things like photo magazines and, and stuff like that. But they wanted to start a children's weekly. And their idea was that Hergé would be the editor of it, and Tintin would be a big part of it. And their idea was to call it Tintin, because that would bring readers in. Right. So, you know, Hergé was interested. Here are these guys, all of them, you know, of sterling character. There's no way that any of these people would, were in the situation that Hergé was in. All of them were, were, you know, good citizens. And so, you know, now he can't work. They can't employ him. But they have influence. And maybe it can help Hergé get his citizenship, get him out of the situation he's in. So he's very interested in what they're proposing because really he has no other options. There's really no other way for him mm. unless he's just going to solely become uh, to do the books. But, you know, he's so married to the idea of the newspaper or, or what Le Petit Vantiem was as a way to promote the stories, to promote the albums. I think he wouldn't have been comfortable with the idea of just doing Tintin as, as books and publishing them with no outlet outside of that. So uh, they met with Hergé at his home and discussed it. They, and then he went and met them at their offices. And, you know, so he felt like this was a good thing. He, you know, he knew that they didn't have a lot of connections in the press, that they didn't have a lot of money behind them. But, you know, his options were limited. And they were optimistic about his political situation. So that was heartening. So uh, LeBlanc had a friend, this guy named Pierre Uju. And Uju, uh, his brother... William Uju was in charge of censorship and certificates of good citizenship. So this was an inn. This was a big inn. So uh, 
Pierre Uju had two jobs to do for, for Tintin magazine. One is he sorted out the paper supply. This guy was like a Mr. Fix-It, I guess. He was a guy who could go in. So he, fig- he figured out where they could get paper from to publish. That was a good start. The next one was more daunting. He went to his brother, you know, and basically said, Erte's a really good guy. He didn't do that, you know, didn't do anything wrong during the war. He just was published in Le Soir. He didn't, he didn't publish articles. He didn't condemn anyone. Uh, um, Raymond LeBlanc went and spoke to William Uju, said the same thing. Casterman, his publisher, went and spoke to him. All of them saying, you know, he's a, you know, what a great guy he was and what a, you know, sterling character, blah, blah, blah. So that's fine. He also called on Vincent to convince him to drop the charges, but there's not that much that he could do either. Uh, and Vincent, you know, he, to him, you know, he was of two minds. You know, Hergé, before the war, you know, in 1940, 41, he was making 55,000 francs a year. In 40, by the time uh, 46 rolled around, or 40, yeah, 45 rolled around, or 44, he was making uh, 78,000 francs. You know, so that's that's a big income increase. So he was benefiting under the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So that looks bad. But there was nothing on him in political terms. So, you know, he was of two minds about it. Now, the thing was that he only submitted his report. That was the end of it. There's not much more he could do. So Uju then used his influence on the genital auditor of the military tribunal, this guy that everyone was terrified of. This guy named, his last name was Ganshoff van der Mersch. And this guy was basically, he was the final say on whether you were a citizen of Belgium or whether you spent the rest of your life, you know, Maybe you just left. Maybe you just yeah. left the country. Or you spent a lot of time in jail. You didn't know. Uh, so, you know, he went to him. And finally, and I guess it was Uju's influence, but basically everyone's attitude was that er, was that prosecuting Hergé would make the tribunal ridiculous. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, would it would it be more ridiculous to prosecute Hergé than a, than a sports writer? Does, isn't that ridiculous too? But in the end, that was everyone's decision. And I think there's a lot of juice behind the people who are pushing for this. Uh, finally, Hergé case was officially closed December 22nd, 1945. Now, that's not the end of it, because uh, now there were still hoops. There was a royal prosecutor who had to look at the case. And so he looked at it and finally gave a favorable verdict. So everything looked good. Everything was going on. And then... A call came from the prime minister's office and stopped everything, and they had to start the whole process over again. What happened? Why was the, what was the call? I don't know. No one knows. He just somehow word came down from the prime minister's office that Aye. they didn't want Hergé to get his citizenship, and so it took another four months, and finally in May 1946 he finally received his certificate of good citizenship, which came in two parts. The first part allowed you to have a driver's license. The second part allowed you to get a passport. Now, while all this was happening, Hergé's mother was really sick. She actually was had to be uh, institutionalized in an, in an insane asylum. Uh, while while Hergé's brother was in the prisoner war camps, news she was told that he had died, and she just went into a terrible shock. It wasn't true; he didn't die, but it just set her into this spiral, and she never recovered. And she actually uh, suffered from a condition that disassociated. Uh, visual from emotional recognition so she couldn't believe that his brother was actually his brother she thought he was an imposter mm-hmm. sent back that kind of kind of looked like him but she refused to believe that he was him 
And so, yeah, she just spent oh, her wow. day, spent her days, and finally she died just around when he got his good citizenship. She she passed on. So, all this was going on, and to me, understandably, Hergé remained very bitter about this. And when he was asked later in his life what the most important event of his life was, was he said first he said the war, then he said not the war, the aftermath of the war, was the most important event of of my life, and for him. The worst thing was he never understood what he was accused of. To Hergé, he was no different than the people working the printing presses. You know, to him, him doing a cartoon in the paper was no different than a person working to print the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, during the occupation, I worked just like a miner, a tram driver, or a baker. But while it was found normal for an engineer to operate a train, members of the press were labeled as traitors. And he just never could understand how that connection was made by people. I mean, we can understand it yeah. because you are supporting a propaganda organ. Well, it's not even the, it's not the supporting. It's like you're the draw. You yeah. are the candy that brings people to the poison. That's right. And That's it's like, right. I'm just the candy. Yeah. It's like, I understand that. Yeah. But the people wouldn't be eating the poison if the candy wasn't here. Yeah. It's like, I'm just making good candy. Understood. But here's the thing, you know? Yeah. Connection, um, connections matter. Yeah. So forever. Uh, so after that, one thing is he became... You know, Boy Scout to the end, true and faithful always. The people he was faithful to were to all the other inciviques, people who lost their live their living. You know, he he lent them money. He would set them up in jobs if he could. For instance, Jacques Van Melkebeek, he got him a, as editor-in-chief. When, when Tintin Magazine finally started, he got him a job there as editor-in-chief. Okay. So Tintin Magazine did start. That did occur. Yeah. Okay. Robert, This other guy named Robert Poulet, who was banned from, from writing, he wrote short stories for Tintin Magazine under a, a pseudonym. Uh, and then his fi- what he called his final station of the cross. On June 3rd, 1946, he, he attended the trial of the of his fellow workers at Le Soir. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, twenty. There's 28 individuals charged, and one of them, Paul Kinnett, who wrote the Dupont and Dupont detective story, uh, he received 10 years imprisonment oh for for writing for the paper. Of the people that were accused, uh, 5,500 Belgian were sentenced to, to imprisonment or to be hung or to firing squads at that time. So it was serious. It was a serious charge to be charged as a non-citizen. So I think, you know, this is a long. A long bit of context. So um, I think we'll talk about the f- the actual formation of Tintin Magazine when we talk about when we do the next Prisoners of the Sun. So, but but we'll just say that uh, the next time that Tintin was published was the very first issue of Tintin Magazine, which was September twenty sixth, nineteen forty six. So it took that amount of time for the conclusion. It wasn't even a conclusion because it just carried on. It didn't stop. There was no, there's no break between this book and, and the next part of Prison of the Sun. It started after, after the scene in the hospital, and in the original in the original book, um, it opens with Tintin riding on a bus into uh, Marlinspike, into Moulinsart, the town, and uh, he gets off the bus in this kind of very small town that's got a dirt road and there's a little sign that says the uh, Marlinspike Church, and then he's then there's a, a sign pointing to Chateau de Moulin, sorry, de Marlin's bike. He starts walking along that road. And on the way there, Snowy gets into a tussle with a hedgehog and ends up with prickles in his nose. And then Tintin, who's so engrossed in his newspaper, misses this little uh, bridge, a little log over the, this creek or stream, and walks into it and submerges himself up to his shoulders in, in this water. 
Uh, that was all cut out. Hmm. So what we get instead is him coming out of the hospital. This was redrawn for the book. So him coming out of the hospital, walking down the sidewalk, and then it cuts to the next day. Um, that same uh, direct shot of Marlon Spike. Of Marlon Spike Hall. Again, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Close, close up on uh, him, uh, I guess, ringing a bell. So then we come in and we see Haddock, or better known as Hergé, <laughs> sitting uh, gloomily in his chair waiting for news. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's really interesting with that context. Just like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> and wow. just the fact that there's two years between this page and the page preceding it. Yeah, that's amazing. Holy cow. Okay, so uh, so um, uh, the captain perks up thinking there might be news about calcul- calculus, but no. Uh, and uh, nope, thundering typhoons, nothing. Uh, there's a, a barking snowy who's uh, barking at the cat again, as he does. Uh, phone rings. Captain answers it. Hello? Yes, it's me. What? Huh? What news? What? What did you say? At a garage two days ago? They went off again? 10,000 thundering thundering typhoons. And hangs up. Uh, Snowy's getting scolded again for his uh, chasing a cat antics. The cat could not give less of a darn. (laughs) Just does not care anymore. I'm on a cabinet. You can't get me here. And I really do like this, you know, where it's like, he's had enough. You know, up uh, goes the captain, uh, slam, slam behind a door, and comes out as full Captain Haddock. Yeah, that's Wearing right. the outfit. <laughs> yeah. Enough of this yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Here we go. Time to work. Time to work. It feels What it feels like to me is uh, Bruce Wayne's depressed. Here comes Batman. <laughs> out we go. But Smashes, unfortunately, but Nestor in the face with What's the, interesting, the though, is, yeah, you're right. He comes out, is ready to work. Then we end up with... This weird sequence of delays. So we, so he comes out, marching to work, en route, he says in French. Yeah. Then Snowy chases the Siamese cat onto a, a suit of armor, goes tumbling down the stairs, ends up wearing the helmet, runs around, falls down outside, runs off, still wearing the helmet. Um, meanwhile, it says, uh, Haddock decides he's going to have a drink. He takes a drink of alcohol, toasts. Calculus saying, we'll see you soon. It's a, a, a life-size picture of Calculus yeah, on the wall? on the wall. And then the picture kind of comes to, comes to life, and he says, a little farther to the west. Yeah, as I told you. Well, uh, Haddock's had enough of the drink yeah. then, throws it out. The classic, uh, throws a drink out. Into a barrel of water where Snowy uh, drinks from it, Snowy and now we get it, yeah. drunk Snowy again. Yeah, this, here's the thing. By like, the way, can I just point out, please the most, point ter- out. most terrible placement of garden hose in any drawing ever Okay. Like, is this too? It's just like too busy in the scene there. Like, don't do that. Yeah, you're right behind there. Now, here's here's my thing with this. Uh, So I'm reading this, and again, I'm reading this for the very first time. I'm assuming this story is going to wrap up. So I'm looking down and going like, ah, we're at page 54. I know there's only 62 pages in this. Yeah. I guess the action's going to kick in real soon (laughs) because we really just had the. All right, that's it. You know, yeah. Ripley's now put on sure. the uh, the mechanical outfit. She's going to fight the alien. Here no. we go. No. Uh, you know, Superman's in his cape. We're about to go. Yeah. Here we go. Calculus is going to be found. And here we. And as I'm reading, it's like I don't think we're ever going to get to the fireworks factory. <laughs> you know, that's what yeah, it feels I mean, like. The, just... the only change that Air J had made was like the title of this was Temple of the Sun in Tintin magazine. Uh huh. That's where it became Temple of became uh, Temple of the Sun in there, and. Yeah, that was the only change. In any other way, the story did not break off uh, again after oh, this two-year okay. break. It doesn't. It doesn't like the like I said. This the the separation between the two books is just 
put in here by Casterman, not by Hergé. Right. So you can't think of them as two separate books. You have to think of it as one story. Gotcha. But as yeah. a person reading it for the first yeah. time, yeah, no, I'm understand. on page 54, and I've just had three pages of... First of all, I had a page of, I'm, I'm at the lowest point I could ever be. No, we're going to take care of this. Let's go. Yeah. Now, three solid pages of comedy relief. Yeah. And it's like, well, that kind of breaks the tension completely. And like yeah. right now here we have a, let's put the top up. Oh, it's hard to put the top up. Oh, I'm hitting my face with the top. <laughs> yes. Well, now we finally got the top up. They finally uh, do it. And the, the rain stopped. And there's a giant rainbow. Which, yeah, by the way, it's very pretty. It's fine. I don't know if you noticed, but it's upside down. <laughs> okay. Well, because it's Roy G. Biv, right? Sure. And then Red, there's orange, yeah, yellow, blue, yeah, you're green, absolutely right. Violet. And there's a, a robin singing and everything. Why did you laugh at that? <laughs> I'm just laughing at the robin singing and and he's got upside down notes and it's fine. It's all fine. It's just maybe like, that's what maybe it's all upside down. Maybe it's all upside down and let's just get on with it. It's, you know, so, it's still a dream sequence from the shooting star. No kidding. Now I've got like. You know, uh, the captain, he's rinsing stuff out, rinsing out, you know, things. Well, ringing out, yeah, ringing, ringing out his out, hat. Yeah. Ringing out his hat, and then he gets splashed with water again. And now, finally, they're driving again. Here we go. Okay, it's just, okay, it's good, it's fine, but, like, yeah, let's, whatever we're going to do, let's do it now, you know. And, and I wouldn't even mind, you know, not getting calculus, but I need a uh, nice action-packed climax now because mm-hmm. I'm I'm nearing the end of this story. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's been a creepy story so far. There's a magical mummy yeah. that's just sneaking in your window at night and smashing crystals, and it makes people have spasms, and they all think torturers are coming, and it's horrific. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, now some comedy. So anyway, uh, so uh, they they the next morning, uh, they're uh, talking to. Is this a police officer? Then they're talking. Yes, to? they're talking to a police officer. You know, I'm sorry. There's nothing fresh. We got no news. So it's like all this time to get to. I got nothing to tell you. Yeah. No. Nope. Okay. Uh, it was a fawn car. Uh, but it was the one. But uh, was it with the one containing your friend? Uh, it was seen heading uh for Westmouth, and since then nothing. Just vanished. The search is continuing. That's all I can tell you. But my opinion, there's very little chance. Oh, excuse me. I gotta get the phone. Hello. Uh, yes, this is Inspector Jackson. Yes. Again. What? Where? One of the docks. Well, I'm. Well, no, no mistake about it. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, you're in luck. Uh, the phone car has been recovered from one of the docks. Why don't you go? Uh, why don't we go take a look? Okay. We're getting to the docks. Yeah. Now we're gonna get a nice big scene at the docks. Finally. Here we go. Big action pack scene at the docks. So they uh, pull up to the dock. Uh, get out of the car. And uh, a little bit of odd perspective here, but fair enough. Uh, we see the car is, uh, is is trashed. You know, she's uh, she she struck an obstacle, so we dragged the dock, and uh, there there you are. Uh, is there any means of identification? License plate? Nothing. No. Uh, the engine and chassis numbers have been filed off. Mass-produced car. No dice. Oh, okay. So the police officer says, "Well, we can be certain of one thing: whoever kidnapped Professor Calculus uh, embarked here." having first tried to get rid of the car by dumping it in the dock. All right. And so that's where we are. Uh, not much further on, says the captain. Uh, him and depressed uh, Tintin go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, we get a nice shot of uh, watching a ship being loaded uh, that's very pretty, and we see, once again, it's the general is there. Uh, Tintin's asking him if he's going off on tour. Nope, nope. Uh, you know, I go to my own country. Uh, music hall, not for me. It's finished. No more partner. Can I just point out, uh, in the second panel on the top line, there's a guy wearing glasses, blonde hair. That's uh, Jacques van Melkebeek making another cameo appearance. Ah, in Tintin very nice. Magazine. 
no partner. What happened to Chiquito, who was his partner? Yeah. Uh, gone, disappeared four days ago. I not blame him. Before we come to Europe, uh, he say he leave me one day. Not to worry. Not to, not to look for him. And it is so. Uh, all right. Uh, tell me, says Tintin, is uh, Chiquito a real Indian? Is Chiquito a real Indian? Uh, Santa Madre de Dios. He is one of the last descendants of the lost Incas. Oh, we're, we're getting somewhere here. Yeah. Uh, what? Uh, descendant of the Incas. I see, see on page 57. All right. We're going to... Here we go. Uh, you sure about that? Absolutely sure. It's pure-blooded Kichita uh, Indian. Uh, Chiquito is just a stage name. His real name is Rupak Inca Hueco. Oh, I wonder. Uh, the thin man beside the driver in the in the fawn car. Fawn car. Have you ever seen Chiquito with a rather fat man with a small black mustache? Horn-rimmed glasses, perhaps? Perhaps a Peruvian? Never. He uh, never see anybody. Never speak to anybody except me. And then he's got to go because the boat's leaving. Dude. Okay, there. So who are you talking to? General Alcazar. Fills him in on the whole thing. Uh, mentions that Chiquito's real name is Rupak Inca Hueco. And he's a descendant of the Incas? Hmm, strange coincidences. Uh, the captain sits back to relax on, uh, on a, c- a couple of crates, which then get pulled up uh, to be loaded onto a ship. Seems like they should have someone guarding that sort of thing. Yeah. Or looking down, at least, to make sure no one's sitting on it. Really? But it's a good scene. Yeah. Uh, he swears at them with the numbskulls, hijackers, kleptomaniacs, body snatchers. And, Et uh, There we go. Back to the police officer. We're going to have a conversation. We're on page 58. Not many pages left. Uh, police officer says, I've made a note of it. We'll try to track down this Chiquito fellow. Ian's, Get on with it. Ian's waiting for his climax. I really am. I'm like, mm, I, don't, I don't know. I'm worried about this calculus guy. Uh, it's been exciting so far. It's weird that, yeah, they're at the docks. They drive back to the police station. Then they drive back to the docks. Yeah. It's strange. That's right. Uh, so anyway, we're back to the docks again. Yeah, it seems like just have the cop there or call him. You know, that would be the easier way to get this information across, but there you some, go. Some more business. Yeah, he kicks Tintin a... sees a hat, a, a floppy green hat laying on the on the uh, yeah. dock. And he as you do, it. you kick the hat because that's what people do. Yep. Uh, some kids have, like, put a brick in the hat uh, as that old joke uh, yep. goes. Uh, oh, so angry at those kids. Cat uh, wants to throw a brick at them. Uh, but Tin says, no, no, don't be doing that. That's not the way to do it. Uh, you'll hurt them. All right, fine. Throws the brick over the side where he hits a, a man in a boat. It's okay. More when you when you look at the kids, you think that they're Quick and Flupka running away. Oh, okay. They're similarly dressed to them. Yeah, I like the designs on the kids. We're on page 60. Um, well, that was a near thing. Uh, they say running away from the angry man who they threw a brick on. Uh, Snowy keeps trying to bring that hat back to Tintin. Tintin keeps throwing it away, much like we've seen uh, Snowy retrieve the uh, pendulum from Calculus in yeah, the past. Yeah. People throw things of Calculus's away. Snowy brings them back. That's what he does with <laughs> Calculus's stuff. Yeah. Uh, brings it back again. It's Finally, true he does actually. Yeah. Snowy throws the hat in the uh, Tintin throws the hat in the water, uh, and uh, and uh, and this is actually a weird bit of coloring on the one where Tintin's throwing the hat into the water. And that looks like Tintin's hairline goes entirely covering his face. Hmm. Um, throws the hat in the water, and Snowy once again dives in, brings it out. Finally, uh, Tintin realizes this is Calculus's hat. Yes. What? But then, oh, we get it. Uh, Calculus wasn't taken uh, aboard at Westmouth, uh, but here at Bridgeport. But where's the ship? And uh, what was the destination? That's what we need to know. How can we find out? I don't know. You better find it on one page. I've got it. We'll uh, try to find those two lads who played the, the trick with the hat. Yes. Mm. And so uh, Snowy tracks them down. 
the children are playing marbles. Whether that means they're bad kids or good kids, I don't know. Probably bad kids played marbles back then. I think uh, just kids just kids played marble, marbles back then. That's right. Uh, the blonde <laughs> kid uh, sees the captain. Cheese it. He's out of there. Uh, not warning his friend at all about that, leaving the friend to... Uh, Whoever can run fastest. That's right. I don't have to be faster than the bear. I just yeah. have to be faster than you. Yeah. Uh, Tintin confronts the kid, uh, not trying to panic him, uh, asking, where'd you get the hat? Uh, we were down in the number tw- 17 shed this morning where the crates were stacked for loading. Uh, the black cat, uh, uh, when they lifted one of the crates out of the shed, I saw the hat underneath, all flattened out. Honestly, it wasn't my idea to play the trick. It was my friend. Well, your friend had a jolly good idea, didn't he, Captain? I love the Captain's trick. That's right. Now, Captain, to the Harbor Master's office. We'll ask them about the packing cases that came from the warehouse. Hmm, all right. So we're at the Harbor Master. All right. Page 61. Uh, yeah, we're page let's 61. Go to the last page. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting uh, page 62. We get to Looking through a registry. <laughs> That's right. Here we go, everybody. All right, anyone want to take you the time to do your taxes? You I'm going to turn this it. last page. And uh, What I assume is there's an Incan mummy holding calculus uh, floating uh, with that ball spinning around. It's going to be an exciting page. Let's turn it. Uh, we're still there at the registry. <sighs> okay, uh, so he's reading from it on the 13th. Let's see. Uh, the Park uh, Parkamak, a Peruvian merchantman, uh, she arrived from Calo on the 10th with the cargo of guano. She sailed again for uh, Calo on the 14th with a load of timber. Oh, fine. I'm most grateful to you. And Sherlock Holmes is on the case. Uh, as I see it, Calculus was kidnapped by Chiquito, the Peruvian Indian. He's aboard the Pacamac, a Peruvian ship, bound for a Peruvian port. But, says uh, the captain, thundering typhoons. Trying to say it's Pachacamac. Please do. <laughs> Look, man, I'm trying my best. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll leave for Peru as soon as we can, says Tintin. Tomorrow or the day after. Now, I'm going, yeah, what's the rush? Uh, now I'm going to tell, bring up the inspector and tell him what we've discovered. Good. And I'll telephone Nestor to tell him we're, we're leaving. The exciting final page phoning people scenes. <laughs> uh, so he's calling the police officer. What? You found the hat? Oh, I can't. All right. Get you. All right. Well, fair enough. When are you leaving? Great. All right. Good luck. <laughs> nice scene. Yeah. Uh, next day, Nestor is uh, dropping off, is running with uh, a, a case as a plane flies off. Uh, asking, excuse me, says Nestor. Is that the plane uh, for South America taking off? Yes. Oh, dear. Oh, my gosh. What a calamity. Terrible. Terrible. Oh, no. Oh, well, let's, just, let's see what's going on. Uh, anything serious? It is indeed. The master has left without a single spare monocle. <laughs> That's not a bad joke. It's a good joke. That's not a bad it's joke. It's not a bad joke. It's, it's fine. a callback to the beginning of the book. As All right. Well. Why don't you wrap it up with the final panel? No, no. It's okay. You, you, you see it. Okay. Well, and there we go. So now it's uh, Tintin saying uh, they're in the plane. Well, off to Peru. We should be in Calo before they say the name of it. The Pachacamac. Uh, we'll get in touch with the police there at once, and as soon as the ship arrives, we'll rescue Calculus. Yes, says the captain, all very fine. But I wonder if it'll be as easy as you think. Uh, we see a nice shot of the plane. Beautiful. Uh, what will happen in Peru, you'll find out in Prisoners of the Sun. And you'll find out next week when we talk about Prisoners of the Sun. Yes. And I'll find out in a couple of days when I read Prisoners of the Sun. <laughs> but while I read uh, Seven Crystal Balls, i got to say I was disappointed by the ending of Seven Crystal Balls. That's just me. Because it really starts so exciting and dark, mm-hmm. and, and it's got uh, almost supernatural. It's yeah. uh, Someone's invading dreams. Yeah, it's very, it's very, once again... People Very, in comas thrashing, uh, magic you know, horrible nightmares. If you know E.P. Jacobs' books, and you can see a lot of him in, in the plotting of the story. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really, really good, it, and then yeah, does not go as, anywhere. As I said, you know, there's no... This, 
There was no ending to the seven crystal balls because there was no book intended to be the seven crystal balls. Understood. So it's a bit, it's a, I can understand your complaint. I don't, I don't find it as egregious as you do. It is kind of weird that knowing that there was a two year break before Tintin started again and then to start it and then just end up with all these little weird time wasters of snowy with a helmet and it almost getting feel- drunk and then the, you know the top. Let me say what this feels like to yeah. me. All right. And again, I'm making assumptions, and when you make assumptions, you know, so on and so forth. It feels like while he was taking his break, you know, you, you probably knew what the plot was going to be generally, yeah. right? But then he probably came up with some business and just was occasionally was doodling, which is like, ah, oh, yeah. that would be funny. Is like uh, Snowy in the knight's hat. That'd be good. Yeah. Uh, what if uh, this happened? He got drunk because he threw the thing. That'd be good. How about this where you're the car and ah, uh, that'd be good. And so when you come back, I'm going to do that. And maybe you've had such a hard time, you want to keep it light for a while. Yeah. Maybe your things are so dark in your life that let's just have some fun for a while and you want to draw a bunch of slapstick for a while. I could completely understand going through those dark days yourself that you completely want to do that for a bit before getting to whatever you're going to get to. That, make, that makes sense to me. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. and also, you're coming... Here's the other thing. Now, now, this was being published in a new magazine, right? The last part of it. Right. The last so part of it from was. From page 51 on. Right, so you're trying to also get new uh, readers, and mm-hmm. possibly, since it's been two years, some of your readers have probably aged out of your story, so there's people reading... It was, it was, uh, Tintin was a pretty, it was a, you know, generational comic, it wasn't just for, for young you. people, yeah. I got you, but a two-year gap, no matter what, with a soap opera-style story, yeah. you're going to lose, a cer- and you're going to gain. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to get new readers, I could understand why... With the gag strip format as it is there, why you'd want to do, let's just do a couple of weeks yeah. of funny stuff before we get on to what we're going to. We don't want to it, start with scary yeah. mummy attacking everybody. That's possible. Uh, it actually, if you look at the first page of, the, of its appearance in Tintin, there's a long uh, kind of catch up, like a long mm-hmm. uh, thing that tells you what ha- what came, you know, what happened, be- what happened uh, before, and then. Uh, the magazine itself, um, I don't know how much help it needed. The very first, uh, very first edition, the first printing sold out right mm-hmm. away, like it was gone off the shelves, because it was published at the right time, in the right climate. You know, yeah. People were were wanting to forget about what was happening, you know, what right. the conditions they were living in, and everything else. No, so. but if you're wanting to forget about the conditions that you're living in, you know, maybe you want. To, again, yeah, keep it light, fun, yeah. and you don't want to start off with not murder, but you don't want to start off with dark attacks and this kind yeah, of thing, and yeah. people thrashing and. Ho- I mean, listen, you're coming out of a war, so you know you probably know people who have been injured. Maybe we don't want to start at the hospital. Maybe we don't want to see people thrashing yeah, in a hospital. You know, and it's like, well, what's the deal? Who? What do people like? They love the dog. Let's have some stuff with the dog for a week. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's great. Well, this went some. Um, once it started being published in Tintin magazine, he was doing two pages a week. Mm-hmm. So it was no longer done in a, in a, in a uh, newspaper style. Oh, we're back four. to the original way of to, doing it. Not original, because actually he's drawing more than he was oh, for, okay. for the Petit, Petit Vantiem or, or Le Soir Jeunesse. Yeah. We'll talk about that next time. No, but that's really interesting. One okay. thing we should... I'll s- listen to the show, even if I wasn't part of it. <laughs> One thing we should talk about before we go was... We've had a few, we've posted a few interesting articles about a court decision. Now, here's the weird thing about that. Now, let me just say before we get into that, it's like uh, one thing that both, uh, we did a a podcast before this called Completely Beatles. Yes. And and with that one, we went through each Beatles album and and talked about what we thought about it. Now, we're doing the same thing with the Tintin books. uh, And 
we won't be normally mentioning things that are too topical. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this will fit into the history of Tintin anyway, so it's fine. But this is one of the one things that won't be evergreen, you know, in our podcast. Like, yeah. hopefully the rest of the podcast you could listen to in five years and it'll make sense still. This, you will know what the result of this will be probably and be ahead of the game. You know, uh, but this is what we, all we know at this present time about this issue. Yeah, so. I just, well, I just think it's kind of interesting because, you know, uh, Moulin Sart, the company that controls uh, Tintin uh, merchandising, uh, is owned by Fanny Rodwell, Hergé's second wife, and her husband, her second husband, Nick Rodwell, who is a lawyer and who opened a store that sold Tintin uh, memorabilia in London near Covent Garden. This is a story that I didn't know about when I last visited London and did not visit, even though I was at Covent Garden. And I've been kicking myself ever <laughs> since. But um, You will go back. I will go back one day. Um, so he, uh, now they are very controlling about the use of Tintin's images mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I was talking about Michael Farr's book. Uh, and it's possible that he no longer has permission to reproduce images from Tintin. I know that happened to Benoit. Paters, another uh, Tintinologist who has written some books about Tintin, he actually once upon a time had access to the Tintin archives, but he doesn't—he no longer has any permission to re- reproduce Tintin images, so he can no longer do those books that he was doing. Uh, now there was a, a fan club in the, in Holland that was brought to court by Moulin's art just to pre- prevent them from reprinting images from the Tintin books, and. What happened was a letter, I guess a 73-year-old letter from 1942 came up that seems to imply that Hergé granted complete uh, rights uh, to to Tintin to Casterman, the publishing company. My problem with it is, we actually talked about this a while ago, the problem with it is that it was in 1942 that Hergé did approach Casterman because he wanted them, because he was already getting a lot of pressure on him to produce merchandise. And he thought, what, what's better than to just uh, have it all taken care of by one person, by one company, the merchandising and the books. But Casterman did not want to do that. They actually said, no, we don't want to have anything to do with the merchandising. They didn't want to have to, like, they already, you know, had connections in the stores and stuff, into the bookstores. They didn't want to have to try and develop relationships with toy stores mm-hmm. and stationery shops and all the rest of it. That they would have to have relationships to sell those products to. Which now, which nowadays you go, that's ridiculous. But then we live in a post Star Wars world, exactly. And even as yeah. far as you know, post Beatles world, I, I understood. But like Star Wars, you know, you had a situation where Alec Guinness, you know, uh, got a little bit of the back end for the toys. Sure. And when he signed that contract, everyone, who cares? Yeah. What's that going to mean? It means nothing. Yeah. You know. So yeah, go ahead. None of the other actors, you know, got any of that action, and that's why Alec Guinness made more money than any of the other actors over. Like made a fortune off yeah. the merch because who would have thought that something that people like would be toys and posters and books and albums and all these kind of things? Yeah. So you now take us back to Tintin times. Yeah. Yeah. No, no one would have thought of that. Why well, would you? That's I a mean, waste of your time, right? Let's just get the book. I mean, there was Walt Disney at that time, and Disney was exploiting the the image of Mickey Mouse and, and but stuff what, like that. Yeah, you have some. But, dolls. I mean, it, it was all to a, yeah, it was all to a, uh, a lesser amount, but you know there was pressure in Hergé to produce puzzles and games and blankets and pillows mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, and so he because uh, Casterman didn't want to do it, he then hired an agent to represent him, a guy named Bernard Terry, who was charging him forty percent of of the income that he was getting from this stuff to, in order to be a representative. That's ridiculous. And Hergé wasn't happy with it, but 
it, where he was at that time, he just didn't have the the energy or the time to to make a fuss about it. So he just let it kind of stand as it was at that time. Mm-hmm. Now that's all 1942. That's when this letter comes from. So if Hergé was granting Casterman these rights, Casterman did not take him up on it. They actually said no. So I think that. Uh, this court case is is going to be challenged, or this court ruling is going to be challenged. Well, it should be challenged and, regardless, yeah. Yeah, but I think it will be challenged, and it will go in Mullinsart's favor. I think it's just just a lower level judge making a mistake in his in his ruling, and I think uh, this will all turn around. All right, so that's uh, so what is that's the, my prediction? What is the date today? Is is it June eleventh? June eleventh today. All right, we're June eleventh. We are two thousand and fifteen, and Dave's prediction is. That Mullinsart will not lose the control of of the merchandising rights to Tintin. Right, and if he does, Dave will pay everyone in our audience ten dollars. I will... that is what you're claiming. You're claiming you will pay everybody who's listening to this podcast ten dollars if you're wrong. If you personally, that's your promise. If you personally come up to me, <laughs> yes, in the street, mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, I will pay you ten dollars. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> if this, no, don't do that. That's not great. Oh, hi, would, would I be the only liar on the internet? Okay, fair enough. All right, I'm just going to go. That's a lot of people on the street. Like you, <laughs> you don't want you don't want that. No. Yeah, you know, we may be in Europe at some point on a street, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to have to dis. I'm going to be the blonde kid in this story <laughs> who's just taken off like a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Johnny, ten bucks uh, yeah. to everybody. No, well, why don't you let us know though what you think of of that situation, and and generally like anything that we've talked about in the show. Uh, our message board is sneakydragon.com. Yeah. And we love to hear from you. Uh, we love it when you throw us uh, extra details about the sh- about the uh, the books that we didn't know, and that's hard when you're talking with Dave. Like it's hard to find those gaps, but you guys have been really finding them yes. and giving us a lot of great information. And I always like that you open it with that dumb Dave missed such and such. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, I'm really enjoy- I'm really enjoying that. <laughs> And I'm not a liar in the that's, internet. That's absolutely not what I do at, in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let, give us your feedback. We love to hear from you. SneakyDragon.com. We also have a Facebook page because legally you have to. It's yes. Again, it's June 11th uh, when we're doing this, 2015. And if you don't have a Facebook page... Who can uh, Lula insert Sue? That's right. We, in yeah. Canada, you don't get health care. They <laughs> require you to have a Facebook page. Uh, we're also on Twitter because that apparently is still a thing. And that's Sneaky underscore Dragon. If you like email, some of you seem to like email. So why not uh, email us? Uh, we're always surprised to see that. It's like, well, there's an email. All right, fair enough. But it's we nice. get right back to you. It's nice. SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. And uh, and also, again, the favor we ask every week, if you uh, have a chance to go on iTunes and give us a review, uh, that helps people to find us. And we appreciate that. Or just tell your friends about the podcast. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, we are just yelling into the dark. Spread the word. Otherwise, I'm just enjoying books. And who <laughs> wants that? <laughs> yeah. Enjoying a series That's of books. That's terrible. Yeah. No, I, I am so far uh, quite enjoying the characters, and I really do like how it's become a real uh, solid cast of yeah. characters here. Mm-hmm. Like, in the last two books, it really feels like it's it's gone up a level, and uh, you're just kind of being welcomed into a new story, yeah. and you're happy to see all these characters well, with, again. Yeah, with these characters that come and go and stuff like that. You know what it reminds me of? Anthony Trollope in his Barchester Chronicles. Okay, well, once you mention Trollope, we're done. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. Uh, we'll have our Trollope podcast in a couple of months. Take care of yourselves.